The September call-ups are coming. I'll talk with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast about the call-ups and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 30th. It's show number 38 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast discussing September call-ups and a few late August call-ups, pitchers for 2020, an early 2020 mock draft, and his boons and banes for the stretch. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including David Peralta, Maurice Dubon, and other National League player news. And Jock Thompson will be along with news from the American League, including Nico Goodrum, Keenan Middleton, and other American League player developments. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about second-half bullpen and base path observations. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Baltimore first baseman Ryan Mountcastle. There won't be a weekend pitcher matchup segment for the next few shows, as Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick is on a well-deserved vacation with his wife. They're traveling the country in their RV, meeting interesting people along the way, and knocking over the occasional convenience store to pay for it all. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about a strategy for the stretch. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Thanks for joining us, because it's... Down the stretch, And we are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you for having me on, Patrick. Yeah, it's been a while. I think we had you on uh, about this time last year, so it's a little bit of parallel there. Uh, let's start off by talking about your various teams. How are they doing and how many are you playing? I'm playing a, a good number. I have cut down this year, um, probably down to, let's see... About about ten, uh, ten eleven. Some are some are the like you know the draft and hold where you're not really having to do much work except keep your lineup and everything. But of the ones that are you know the weekly work, my main event unfortunately is trash. I mean it's it's just plain and simple. Uh, it has not gone well from the jump, and I've never been able to really turn the ship around despite despite my efforts uh, to do so. I'm hanging fifth in my TGFBI. I think I have a chance at maybe stealing as high as second, maybe third. Um, first is is going to be really, really difficult there. But if I can get top 50 in the overall, that's not terrible. I'm not really dying for a moral victory, but uh, it wouldn't be the end of the world there. I'm fourth in my second chance league, the one that was on Memorial Day at the NFBC. And that vacillates as high as second on any given day. So I really do have a chance there. And that's been, uh, that's been fun because you had the whole, you know, first six, seven weeks of the season to kind of draft off of. And it was, uh, really interesting how that draft broke down. 
I have a head-to-head league where I'm second, going to make the playoffs, which start next week, so that'll be fun. I'm fighting for a playoff spot in the tout head-to-head, and then uh, Jason Glett and I are 12th in labor. We uh, we had pretty good pitching for the bulk of the year. We did make an effort to turn around the hitting. It was probably just a little too late. Uh, the fact is, since we made the trade, we have gained uh, like 15, 16 points in our hitting, but when you start as low as we were with the hitting... It was just too little, too late. We acquired we acquired uh, Christian Yelich from Jake Seeley in a big deal, and got Aaron Judge off the IL. So those were you know two kind of giant moves. But again, the damage was kind of already done. We could maybe linger up to about middle of the pack still with with you know five six weeks left, but uh, you know no no real chance to win it. That raises a question. I'm curious about your take. Uh... In uh, in the tout league I play in, there's been some consternation expressed because guys in, near the top are trading with guys near the bottom, and because the guys near the bottom want to improve their standing for uh, next year's fab reasons, you're penalized if you don't reach a certain point threshold. But also just out of pride and you know the need to keep playing, and so they have mm-hmm. they have the uh, they want the ability to move up in the standings and. Sometimes it feels to the other guys in the league that if you're in second fighting for first and you're trading with a guy who's in 10th fighting for ninth, that creates a uh, competitive imbalance in the league that some guys don't like. What do you think about that? I mean, you have to trust that people are, are playing with the best intentions, right? For me, I, I understand that that's part of uh, that's part of the issue there with, with trades as why why some people don't like them uh, because – they see an imbalance there, but for me, as far as like, you know, vetoing things or, or, or really kind of restricting it, you can really only do that in the case of collusion for me. I, I don't think, you know, keeping quote unquote the competitive balance, like, cause who's to say, I know trades can look really bad on paper, but we still never know how they're going to play out. And anytime you're trying to veto something that isn't in the name of, of, a, of collusion or something, you're really impressing your player values on, on everybody else. And so, you know, if you have the group that that you do, you have to trust that they're that they're playing above board. And you know, if something needs to be discussed, and and hey, what's this trade look like? Can we get the rationale from both guys and go there? Um, I, I'm open to it. I'm I'm reluctant to ever really veto unless it's it's really necessary. But for me, that's usually collusion, and then I want to kick the two guys out, which I doubt is happening in any of the industry leagues. You mentioned a moment ago you were talking about the efforts you made in your main event team to improve and said, you know, with any luck you move up in in your spot uh, in your individual league a couple of slots and and that's worth doing just for the exercise of it. But in the absence of the ability to make trades, which is the sort of steroids version of of moving your categories, what can you do in a a in a league where the only thing you have at your disposal is your reserve list and uh, the whatever's left in the free agent pool. What kind of moves can you make in the NFBC absent trades? See, it, it becomes difficult because uh, you you are running out of fab normally at that time as well, which I, I absolutely am. So not only am I running up against the fact that I can only do so much with the ball club that I have, but I'm also more or less out of fab. And so I'm making the incremental moves. You're still trying though. You're still looking at everything and, and you're making your small moves. You put the best guys at the top just in case you spike them. And, and I've definitely seen some weirdness as far as, 
as far as uh, prices. And so that's always, you know, fun that you can maybe sneak one of the guys through. But you just keep grinding out your waivers every week. Hopefully you're getting the best guys and you try to make those incremental moves. But there's not a whole lot of else you can do because, like you said, the steroid version is, is you know, making a big trade and moving up. In this, it's it's much more incremental. You either you need your players to have the tide turn for them and some of your new acquisitions to kind of infuse some uh, some extra good play there. So it can be tough, especially when you're at the bottom and you're not even seeing. For me, on my uh, on my main event, not only am I low, but I can really only catch one person. And so that's like a total grind because then the next step up is so many points. So I have one person in front of me who's two points, but then uh, Larry Schechter's actually in my league. He's 20 points away. So it's like this chasm that that is set between us. And, you know, at that point, I just mind my team, make sure that it's set, and you you can't really do anything else. You can't force it. And I think something like this is why I'll never become a one-league person. I do envy those folks because it seems very cool to have just your guys for the entire year and and you're just grinding on that team for the entire year but while I will be continuing to cut my my workload it's not going to be all the way down it's never going to be down to just one because you run into a season like this and then your summer's pretty much sunk in my uh, FBI league I was battling for second and third I've been battling second and third all year in the league but our, the guy leading our individual league was way ahead of, of both of us. In fact, he was leading the overall for uh, about a month there, uh, Ruvain Guy. And, uh, yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, and here's one reason to keep grinding, the guy in front of you may run into some difficulties. And Ruvain's had a couple of real key injuries. And all of a sudden, and I picked up uh, Kyle Seeger for a dollar off of off oh. of the waiver pool with my last dollar of FAP. I just needed to replace a third baseman, so I bid on every third baseman there was, starting with him, and I got him. And that has sort of sparked a bit of a resurgence on my part. But all of a sudden, I'm sort of within 12 points of Ruvain. And before, I was 30 points away from Ruvain, but he's just stopped amassing points because he's had these uh, very critical injuries to key players. So I think the object lesson is keep gunning because, in your case, maybe Larry Schechter's going to lose a guy to injury down the stretch and, and just stop amassing points or have to replace a, a good batting average guy with a, with a subpar guy and move backwards or ERA and whip you can move backwards. you got to keep plugging. That, that's the thing. And, you know, that's been a message I've had on, on podcasts, both mine and, and guest spots throughout the year, is to just keep going because – you you don't know how it's going to go. And if you just give up and say, well, I can't do anything here, then yeah, that will be your fate. But if you have, if you keep putting your best team out there and keep doing your work, you may be rewarded for it. And you know, I, I know for a, a full on fact that I'm not going to win that main event team. But if I did somehow creep into ninth, you, you don't really take much from a ninth, 10th place finish. But in this particular instance, it would be like, hey, I did the work. It went in. It, you're still doing the reps that you would need to do with a with a winning team, with a, with, with a team that was in competition. So it's still that same work of, of looking at the numbers, looking at the players to pick up, the moves to make. So I think it's still valuable to continue to play that way and grind it out like that because when you are in the scenario where you're, where you're in second or third fighting for first or in first trying to hold it, you're doing those same tactics so you're getting reps for that in my opinion 
I think the use of the term reps is exactly right. Uh, you're you're exercising just the way you would to prepare for a, a pole vault or something like that. You're just practicing and getting your moves right and understanding what you need to do so that when it really does count, it becomes more like muscle memory rather than saying, "Well, now what can I do?" Because you've done it before, even in a even in a difficult context. Uh, listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And Paul, in addition to your other work at Rotograph. You do have the regular podcast, The Sleeper and the Bust. It's one of my favorite pods, and I recommend it really highly. And Thank you. On last Thursday's edition, you were joined by Justin Mason and Vlad Sedler. These are outstanding writers, great analysts, and really good fantasy baseball players. And you guys basically drafted the first three rounds of a 2020 draft. You each took five teams so you could fill out three rounds. Uh, what were the parameters of the early mock? So basically, we were trying to play it. Uh, more or less like the NFBC. That was that was kind of the focus that we were trying to give to it. The main difference there that you would probably see from home leagues is that the the NFBC tends to push up pitching a bit. So that was that was something that we kind of kept in mind that we would do that. Um, and then we decided that uh, you could draft Otani if you wanted to draft him as both because we don't know what NFBC is going to do with him. We actually don't know what the Angels are really going to do with him. So it's hard to know what the fantasy outlets are going to do. So 15 team NFBC focused and then Otani available as hitter and pitcher. Um, and then we kind of just went from there. Otherwise it was a standard five by five. And uh, we were each drafting, like you said, five teams. So, you know, Vlad had first pick, but then when he picked again at four, that was a separate team. Yeah, that, that was a really good idea because it allowed you guys to pick a lot more teams, which is really helpful in, in setting this kind of thing up. Uh, Mike Trout did not go first overall, and this is a topic that's come up on a lot of podcasts, I'm sure, as you know, and a lot of uh, articles about fantasy baseball. How surprising to you was Vlad Sedler's first overall choice of Ronald Acuna? There was definitely some surprise to it, but I, I can't say that I was stunned. I think we'll see plenty of Acuna going first. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's going into his age 22 season, uh, potentially with a 40-40 season under his belt. We'll see how he finishes. I understand it. And, um, you know, it's. N- I don't think there's anything against Trout. I just think that it's it, It's almost the, the shiny new toy with the fact that he's put up the numbers. You look at the stolen base difference between the two as well. And who's more likely to keep their stolen bases, the 22-year-old or the guy going into his age 28 season who's only stolen 10 this year? Trout's still a beast. He's still absolutely a viable number one, too, if you really want to make that pick. But I think Acuna has a strong case despite not having near the track record of uh, of a trout and uh, so I you know it was a little bit of a shock but not something that had my jaw dropping I had a version of this discussion with Gene McCaffrey on the show, and I came down on Christian Yelich first overall because of the track record. Uh, to me, Ronald Acuna represents a bit of risk because he's only done it once. What he's done this once has really been uh, spectacular. Where did Yelich fall in your guys' mock, and why? He went third to me, and I think that that, that top three is probably how it should go in some order. Uh, Tra- Acuna, Trout, Yelich is the order that we picked. I really think any order is justifiable because yes, we can look at the numbers this year and, and 
say what order they're in, but we're also projecting forward for 2020. I don't think Bellinger's too far out of that group either, so that if he snuck in over one of the other guys, it would not be it would not be by folly from the person picking them. But I like those top three there of Acuna, Trout, Yelich in some order. I understand your uh, your your preference toward Yelich. Like you said, this is a second MVP caliber season here that he's actually improved on. Yeah, everything's better this year. All three of his slash lines uh, with the average OBP and slug for Yelich are better. The the home runs are better. The stolen bases are better. The only things that aren't yet, and we still have time to see in the in September are the runs in RBIs. And so you take Yelich, who had this brilliant MVP season. He's he's somewhat quietly gotten better. And I only say quietly because everyone knows he's been great this year, but I'm not sure that everyone realizes that he's actually been better. They just know that he's justifying his his 2018 MVP. But I don't know if everyone that doesn't have Yelich on a team or hasn't used him in DFS fully realizes that he's been better this year, which is insane. So I think he's a perfectly viable number one as well. I think you're going to see Acuna, Trout, Yelich uh, going number one in leagues and and probably the pitchers uh, in, in different NFBC leagues, like a Cole, uh, probably Scherzer at some point too, and maybe Verlander. I think those are the six guys that will go number one and, and they'll have a little one as far as their min pick in NFBC once all the drafts are done uh, at that outlet. The worry about Yelich that I've heard and that I subscribe to is the back injuries can be a little tough on on hitters because of the amount of torque they put on their uh, trunks in the act of swinging. Trevor Story, all the way up yes. to fifth overall, Paul, ahead of Francisco Lindor and ahead of Mookie Betts. Uh, that surprised me a little bit that uh, people are down on Mookie Betts so quickly after a, a terrific season two years ago. How much were you expecting Betts to fall from the consensus number two last season? Uh, about where he went. Uh, I think it made sense. You, you don't want to make the mistake that, that some folks made, and I'm not to toot my own horn because it was not hard, in my opinion, to, to still stay bought in on, on bets after the 17 season when he hit 264 and he was, you know, solid. He was 24 homers, 26 steals, great counting categories. Uh, it was just the batting average that was down, but it was all BABIP related. So I stayed bought in 2018, obviously a brilliant MVP season. This year's somewhat similar to the 2017. It's not as bad with the batting average, but it's the same kind of thing where the BABIP's down a bit, but everything else is strong, and uh, he's only going to be 27 next year. I, I'm not going to let him get too far down there. It went Story, Lindor, Betts, and again, I think you take those three and you can put them in any order, and I'm fine with it. I took Lindor over Betts. I could easily see another scenario where I take Betts over Lindor. That's really just a personal preference feel type of pick, even with Story included there too, because he has Coors Field as such a good protector for his numbers, and he's now had a second great year that uh, I think those three are another trio that you just kind of take in whichever order you feel on that given day. I know, you know, what, why, why wouldn't you stick with the same thing every day? Because those three are too too close to really say, hey, these are the three in this order. I'm locking it in. No, I think maybe one day I take Lindor if I have the same pick in a draft. Three days later, okay, I'm gonna take Story this time, and then uh, you know, three days after that, I take Bets. That's how close that trio is for me. 
to me also when you're looking at the, the, making these kind of decisions you, you, uh, as far as best is concerned I'd be really curious where Boston plans to hit him in the order because this year his RBIs are way off considering the amount of hitting that he's doing but he's leading the league in runs scored and runs scored is like the redheaded stepchild of fantasy baseball if you ask me people consistently underestimate how important it is and how impactful a guy like this can be so in 2017, he had 101 runs, 102 RBIs, and you could make the argument that that's a better season fantasy-wise than 118 runs but only 70 RBIs. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially, you know, if you do the math for kind of the batting difference, it is 18 points of batting average right now if you're comparing Betts' 17 versus his 19. But the counting categories, yeah, I mean, uh, he's going to end up with a, a ton of runs, maybe even eclipsing last year's 129 because he's going to play more games, Mookie Betts is. But the RBIs, I think part of it, uh, as far as the difference between the 17 and 18, is that volume because he did have 153 games, 712 plate appearances. Let's see where he finishes the year. Now, he's not going to get to 102 ribbies, but if he's say, uh, let's say he drives in, I don't know, 25 more the rest of the season. And he is up at like, uh, what, what would that be? 92 that plus the 100 and maybe 30 runs. I think 130, 90 probably is better than 100, 100 for me. So uh, I agree with you on the runs piece. I think it's wildly underrated consistently even though lots of podcasts you're always hammering on it we've talked about it on sleeper in the bus we hear the industry talk about it and yet it still goes underrated there's just something about it that people can't quite give runs their their full due but uh, it remains an interesting value point in fantasy so i'm not too mad about it i'll, I'll keep you know singing to the masses that it is something you should pay a lot of mind to but if folks don't want to then i'll be there to swoop in you mentioned that there was a, a NFBC tilt to the pitching in your guys' draft because you were using the NFBC model and four starting pitchers in the first round, uh, the usual suspects, and Jacob deGrom in the second. And I was a little surprised that deGrom has fallen that far away from the from the top pitchers. I think it was five starting pitchers in the first round, maybe. I, I don't remember. But were you surprised that deGrom was so far after that first clump of, of top starters? I was, and, and you're right uh, on the first thing. It was four guys. It was Cole Scherzer, Verlander, Bueller. And then the the real surprise there that you mentioned is that DeGrom went so much later. So Bueller goes 14th to Justin's last team, and then DeGrom goes all the way at pick 24. So the, all those hitters there, an interesting group of hitters, but the fact that DeGrom fell there, and I had three picks myself, so I, I was absolutely part of the part of the issue there where I didn't take him as well. That's definitely uh, falling lower than I think he should. There is a there. It's probably not a viable worry because at some point he has to get like a 17 win season. But here we are yet again with a comically low wins total for Jacob Degrom, despite an utterly brilliant season. Now that's not going to deter me from taking him uh, very high. You know, I actually have him as my third starter in uh, uh, in my top 30 that I did for next year, my early run of that. But it is it is becoming annoying. It's, it is something that we're looking at and like, what is the deal here? I would still project him for a, a, a you know, what, 12 or, you know, 14, 15 wins, even though he has 15 wins just once in the last four years for Jacob deGrom. Um, again, I didn't take a pitcher in that in that group from Bueller to deGrom. 
I would have definitely taken DeGrom there. And frankly, if I had picked uh, a pitcher, I would have put him ahead of Bueller right now. But I think it's justifiable that the four that went ahead of him, I think the only kind of disagreement would be the fact that DeGrom fell that much further. And as you said, in a way, it's justifiable because he plays for by far the worst team out of the out of the pitchers we're talking about. All of these other teams are Correct. pretty good at at winning baseball games, and we know from research and we know from basically just our own instincts that if you play for a team that's going to win, you know, eighty five games, you're not likely to get as many wins as a guy who plays for a team that's going to win 103. And that we have a Dodger, we have two Houston Astros, and we have a Washington Nationals guy in those top four, and Scherzer's like almost in a class by himself. So there is some justification for looking at the wins, even though, you know, we always say don't chase wins, but really we always do chase wins to a certain amount because we have to use something. And in, in the case of starting pitchers, especially at the top of the table, we expect that they're going to pitch well. So the only thing we have to do to gauge win expectancy is team expectancy. Exactly. Yeah, we do say don't chase wins, but that doesn't mean that you fully ignore them. Uh, we, we say that in, a, in, I think for me personally, I mean that more with the middle of the pool. Uh, don't necessarily assume that, uh, that you're fourth fifth starter on the great team will outproduce the the two starter on a on a bad team and wins you know it's something like that like i would not give up the skill of caleb smith uh maybe not a great uh, example right now he's he's fallen on a little bit of hard times but i i generally still like him and i think i'm gonna like him next year he's, he's been pretty great this year so i'm not gonna give up the skill of caleb smith just because he's a marlin to take and and this is going to sound crazy right now, but coming into the year, I, I I feel very confident that this guy was going ahead of him regularly to take Jay Happ just because he's on the Yankees and he's going to get more wins. And yet, that's exactly what some of the drafting that we saw there. So for me, the don't chase wins really comes in that middle of the pool when you're really just looking at the skills. Don't worry about how the wins are going to fall. You know, maybe you spike a Domingo Herman who has an absurd record. And again, if you had chased wins with him, sure, that would have worked. But he's also highly skilled. So that I don't even think it necessarily works to say that people were just chasing wins with, with Domingo Herman. He's incredible. So I am looking at it now. And uh, J Hap was the 51st pitcher off the board. And Caleb Smith was 147th. And so there was a, a chasm between the two. And again, it's easy to say with the, with the, results now how bad that was but some of that was hey Jay Happ 36 he's not great but he's going to put up like a you know low four ZRA and he's going to pile up wins he does have 11 wins but he's been absolutely awful because he's been a home run machine in New York meanwhile Caleb Smith only has eight wins but it's only three different and he's been great this year so I cherry picked that example off the top of my head but there that's usually where the chasing wins is a problem don't take a less skilled guy uh, on a great team over the ace or second guy of a terrible team just because you think he's going to get more wins. Well, we'll talk more about uh, starting pitchers in a second. You mentioned your uh, 2020 top starting pitcher list, but I, I just wanted to ask you about a couple more hitters before we move on. And I'm looking in the second round and I was a little surprised to see that Xander Bogarts lasted all the way to pick 27, which is near the end of round two. Jordan Alvarez went 21st, so six picks earlier, and he's got what, uh, you know, 
150 plate appearances, something like that. And uh, yeah, maybe 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 like 250. Okay, 250. And then Rafael Devers also behind Jordan Alvarez. When you look at those three guys, uh, what do you think uh, is going on with the youngest, least experienced guy finishing ahead of uh, Bogarts, who's having a great year, and Devers, who's a huge breakout? There's absolutely some recency bias to that. Uh, Alvarez has been out of his mind. I think there's some justify, you know, there, there's a justification to take Alvarez in the second round. Um, but, but I don't know that it can be ahead of those two Red Sox in particular. Now I took, uh, Alberto Mondesi ahead of Xander Bogarts, which was different for me because I really, I, I loved Mondesi, but I thought he was taxed pretty heavily coming into the season. I'd say, frankly, he's pretty much panned out outside of the injury, which we can't predict. And he's going to come back and he's not going to look great because uh, they don't want him diving. So it's going to be tough to see if Mondesi even steals. So we'll have to assess him, uh, you know, going forward here in the fall. Xander Bogarts is somebody I've been, I've been touting for a while. It, it felt like an easy tout. I almost felt like it was, it was cheating to say, go get this guy. He's got a star talent season coming at some point. He really did it last year, but he's actually added to it again this year with the power. He's basically taken last year and had the uh, the juice ball give him some extra homers. You know, I'm not saying it's just that, but that's pretty much the difference right now between Xander Bogart's last year and this year. He's a bona fide superstar, and I still think there's even more than this, which is going to end up as probably like a a 335 type of season. I still think there's a a 30 something homer season with a with a league leading batting average type of scenario for Xander Bogart. So we're talking 35 homers and a 333 average, something like that with crazy runs and ribbies because he's on the Red Sox. So I did think that he really slipped there. I did take JD Martinez. Uh, so Devers, Martinez, and Bogarts all kind of went in the same area. Uh, I took Martinez over Bogarts. Those were the two I was debating, though. I was going to take one of the Red Sox, and the team that I took Martinez for already had Lindor, so it didn't make that much sense to take Bogarts. But I had no—I would have had no problem taking him there. And frankly, with the Mondesi pick uh, that was paired with Scherzer, I considered Bogarts, but I went for the premium speed there because it is such a—it is such a rarity these days to have somebody who can steal that many. I think it was Gene who mentioned it, uh, maybe somebody else if not, but steals are the same, uh, or they're not too different as far as uh, totals, but the distribution is so much different. And so if you're getting somebody who can realistically steal 40, 50, maybe even 60 with a full healthy season like Mondesi, I still think it's worth chasing despite his his very outward flaws. I mean, one of my big concerns about Mondesi was that he could have a sub 300 OBP. Well, he did, Patrick, and yet he still has seven homers and 31 steals in his 82 games. And it's easy to kind of double that up because, uh, you know, because it's, it's essentially a half season and that's 1462. And I know that that sounds crazy to do that, but then you just look at his half season of last year. It would be 2163 if you added 2018 and 2019 for Mondesi. So I still think Mondesi can go ahead of Bogarts. But to your general point about those those two Red Sox, Devers and Bogarts, I love both of them, and I think both of them should go over Jordan Alvarez. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs, Sleeper in the Bust podcast. In last Friday's pod, you and Nick Pollock from PitcherList.com discussed your the early top 30 starting pitchers list that you made up for next season. You posted it in mid-August, I think, on Rotographs. Uh, that's the 2020 starting pitcher pool you were drawing from. What standards and methods did you use for looking that far ahead? 
So, you know, you want to be careful with too much recency bias. Um, we know that. Uh, you don't want to just be putting uh, Lucas Giolito fourth or something like that because uh, because he's had such a brilliant season and he has some ped- pedigree to go with it. You don't want to completely forget the guys who are studs that, that were nicked by injury like a Blake Snell and another one that you and I are going to mention here in a moment. But the most recent performance is important still. So balancing that with, say, 18 and 17 is kind of the difficult task there. I'm sure that there is a lot of recency bias on this uh, on this list right now that will get sorted out hopefully in the fall and winter as I do more work. But it was my first blush at it to kind of say, hey, here's the pool that I'm looking at. The, the number, you don't have to get too hung up on it because there are groupings. You know, I, I, I termed something called the glob a few years back where it was like after pitcher 25, you could say that the 28th guy is just as good as the 60th, which sounds crazy. But then you look at the talent disparity and it's just not that much. I think there are, are similar globs this year and they start even earlier. And Nick and I kind of discussed that maybe at like 15, to 30 now is its own glob. And so you, if you really love Sonny Gray and I had him 28th, you could bounce him up as high as 17, which is where I have Trevor Bauer, his teammate. You know, I, I think that getting too hooked on the number and ranking is difficult because the, the, the talent has really clustered in the pitching pool. So you really have to identify the guys you like, the paths that you can see them taking toward a breakout and go from there. And so, you know, I just put them in my first order here. There's still a lot of changes I'd already make, and I made it just two weeks ago. But uh, I feel pretty happy with what I put out. Yes, it's interesting. And, of course, you'll update it as time goes by and things change and we learn stuff. Uh, you keep updating that list. And I just want to say when I use your list, I usually combine yours with a couple of other lists that I trust. And uh, I notice the glob, too, and I think that, for me, the differentiating factor then becomes risk. I look at, uh, you've got a yes. glob, you will call it the 26 to 35 glob, and, and they are pretty much fungible in that, in that range. And when my pick comes up and I think I need a starting pitcher and I know I'm going to take one of these guys out of this glob, then what I'm going to basically base, base my uh, decision on is, is there heightened or reduced injury risk amongst any of these guys? Is there a wins risk because of poor team? Uh, these kind of considerations mm-hmm. that uh, if we accept that they're all pretty much interchangeable commodities, then I'm going to start looking at things outside their skills package to make the decision. I'm not going to let that wins be the primary thing, but it's going to be a factor if I'm looking at uh, you know uh, uh, two equal pitchers, one of them from the Dodgers, one of them from the Tigers. I hate to say it. I'm going to I'm going to take oh. the guy from the Dodgers. True. Yeah, Hanjin Ryu, you know, coming off this brilliant season here, he's still an innings risk. He's still a, a uh, health risk without a doubt, even coming off of this great year. But you compare him to somebody, um, you know, like a uh, like a Matthew Boyd, or maybe not Boyd because of his second half's been so rough with the homers, but maybe like one of the two Rangers, Mike Miner and Lance Lynn. I agree with you. You look at the skills of those that trio there. It's all pretty good. You can make a good case for all three, but I'm going to favor Ryu because he's a Dodger and Lynn and Miner are Rangers. And the simple fact is, even if the Rangers improve, they're not going to be the Dodgers. So I'll take the added health risk of Ryu over maybe a, a you know a known workhorse like Lance Lynn, who, by the way, if if you got, if folks don't have him on their team, go look at what he's doing. He's having a fantastic season, and he really started it last year when he got traded over to New York, even though the results weren't quite there. The underlying skills absolutely were. 
first. So it might sound weird that I'm comparing those two if you're not familiar with what Lance Lynn's been doing. But yeah, when it comes down to it, if the talent's that close, you do have to go toward the soft factors of team uh, health. I wouldn't say is necessarily a soft factor, but we can't predict it that accurately. But you throw that into the mix. Uh, maybe pitches, you know, this guy's a two pitch guy and he could be at greater risk of, of having troubles, even though we haven't seen it yet versus this guy who has four pitches, stuff like that. You have to get deeper because the surface numbers just aren't going to differentiate enough. And then you're going to be stuck with that paradox of choice where you almost have too many options and you keep punting and punting until you're left with the, the, the tail end of it. And maybe you're not comfortable with it. So for me, I attack the glob. I decide the guys that I like. I don't necessarily let the draft deliver to me. Even though I am saying they're close, I still want to find the guys that I like the most so I can feel most comfortable with those pitching picks. You and Nick naturally had some disagreements about where guys were placed on the list, and you both acknowledged in the uh, preliminaries of your discussion that there is a glob, and if you put a guy 29th instead of 24th, that's not worth arguing over. But you did have some legitimate disagreements about fairly large uh, discrepancies between how he places pitchers and how you do, and he thought you were a little harsh on Luis Severino of the Yankees. He was only an honorable mention for your list, but he was top 20 to 25 in Nick's list, as he said. uh, What was the gist of the discussion about Luis Severino? Yeah, I think that that Nick is understanding the the immense talent of Severino and realizing that he's not going to uh, overreact to the to, to the missed season, uh, which is essentially what it's going to be. I mean, he might get a little bit of of time here and maybe even be in the playoffs for them, which would help. By the way, I kind of parked him, and there's a few guys like that that I parked because we have to see what it's going to look like in 2020, particularly in spring training. So basically what I think is the difference between Nick and I, Nick already fast forwarded to March pretty much because I think that if Severino, first off, if he finishes with the team, if he's in the playoffs, that alone is going to get him into my top 30. Just seeing him healthy, upright, pitching, as long as he's not getting blasted, of course, uh, that's going to help You know, just kind of have a better feeling of where we are with Severino. But then what's really going to move the needle, of course, is spring training. And once we see where he's back and he goes out and he's dominating the Grapefruit League like Severino can, he's going to skyrocket up the board. I wanted to park him here to acknowledge that he's still very much part of this this top group here, which ended up being 52 total pitchers. But I couldn't quite put him in the top 30 yet with a full missed season. Because again, we're talking about the factors that we would have to differentiate in the glob. Well, somebody who missed an entire season is a giant risk right now. So until I see something from him, Carlos Carrasco is another one that I did that with. But he's coming back now. So he's already working his way up, even though he's only going to relieve. It's great that he's handled the leukemia. That was a devastating uh, situation there that has turned out very positively. He was throwing bullets in the minors, and he's going to be up relieving soon, Carlos Carrasco is. So he would already start moving up. Basically, for me, I you can call it a cop-out, frankly. I, I, I would understand if people said, hey, you're, you're copping out with those two. But they were such uncertainties, and with pitching already being such an uncertainty, I didn't want to add to it by saying, okay, Carrasco's still 20th, and Severino's still 18th. No, I put them down here, and then we'll, we'll see them slowly move up the board as they prove their worth once again. You guys disagreed pretty strongly about Shane Bieber and Steven Strasburg and whether they both belonged in the top 10. What was Nick's issue, and what was your response? I think he has some t- trouble trusting Strasburg. I think a lot of folks do. 
and uh, and he's still not necessarily ready to 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 jump in on having him there. I think I think he mentioned Snell, Kershaw, Clevenger, uh, and as far as Clevenger, uh, that that goes into Bieber too. He has Clevenger ahead of Bieber, so that's why he would that that was the instant disagreement there with the two Indians pitchers. But as far as Strasburg. I think there's just still some trepidation with him, and I understand it. That I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it, there's like a there's like a Paul cast over uh, Steven Strasburg in the fantasy community in general. There tends to be an overwhelming freakout the second that he gives up a couple runs in the first inning of a start. If you're kind of following it on Twitter, it's like oh go oh boy here goes Strasburg again. There seems to always be some sort of injury issue in every given season, but I look at it. And yes, I understand those things. He only has one 200-inning season. He's pacing toward his second this year. We'll see if Strasburg gets there. But the simple fact is, is that he's never been bad. Literally never. Uh, he might not give you the volume that you want, but in today's game, you don't need the volume to be a top 10, 20, 30 pitcher. Like you just, because nobody's getting the, or not, not nobody, but not enough guys are getting the volume that your 160-inning season uh, if the rates are good enough and you can steal enough wins, you're not winning seven games or something, which by the way, DeGrom must envy Strasburg. He has double digit wins each of the last six seasons, despite only eclipsing 175 one time, uh, as far as his innings go. So I like Strasburg. I think he's quietly, uh, had the tide turn a little bit too much on him. If people want to put him in the teens of the ranking, I don't, I don't really agree with that. I think he's proved himself as a, as a superstar pitcher when he pitches. Just the health piece, but I think the health piece is something that you worry about with every pitcher. So give me somebody like Strasburg as a top 10 guy. As far as Bieber versus Clevenger, I can understand, you know, debating those two. Um, I was a little bit tepid on Bieber coming into the year. I wanted to see if he could really develop some command. I thought he was far too hittable. He still has a little bit of uh, hittable issues. He, he can give up some barrels, but he did he did develop that command, and I was really interested by Bieber. And he's kind of the opposite of Strasburg. I think he's going to compete for some innings pitched titles in in uh, in the coming years here, and that volume can make up some of the skills uh, shortcomings. You know, he might be a little bit. Uh, homer prone here and there because he does fill the zone. Uh, his K rate might not hold, although it did spike brilliantly this year. But volume is where Shane Bieber is really going to excel along with the ratios and strikeouts. So I love Strasburg and Bieber. I don't dislike Clevenger, but that was our main contention with Nick and I was that he liked Clevenger above those two. You said you're very close to returning Clayton Kershaw to your top 10. And I look at Clayton Kershaw, I see a guy who's having a great year, but he's 32 years old, coming off some back problems. Uh, what is it about Clayton Kershaw that has reignited your passion? Well, and not reignited. I, I, I stuck with him all year this year, coming into the season. I thought people were being too too t- timid with him. And, and they didn't want to be caught holding the bag in case things fell apart. Patrick, I understand the volume situation, right? We're not getting 200 inning Clayton Kershaw anymore, but it goes back to the point I just made about innings or uh, yeah, about innings counts and what you can do with it. He was a 273-104 guy last year. It was in 161 innings and he only had 9 wins, but that's still brilliant to put into your lineup. I think people were really pushing a little bit too far on what Clayton Kershaw was going to not do this year. And he's been basically the same guy at 276 and a one even on his whip. And he's 13 and three, which, you know, that's just the nature of, of how the decisions are going to go. It could be nine and five again next year if he only throws this many innings. But 
He's made 23 starts. He's going to make an, you know another six or seven, so he's going to be pushing right up against 30 starts. I mean, he's still Clayton Kershaw. Yes, he'll be 32, but he's the best pitcher of his generation, and he's still never been close to a three ERA since his rookie year of 2008. I mean, he, like, I guess a 291 is technically close, but, uh, I mean, he's so good when he pitches. I'm not going to run away from Clayton Kershaw. So I have him 10 right now. And I think, I think when I re rank, he's going to move up even another couple ticks. Any concern with you? I mentioned the injury, but, uh, where do you rank the idea or how do you incorporate the idea that as a pitcher like Clayton Kershaw is getting older, he's maybe losing a, a mile or two off his fastball. He has done, as we all know, but he's maybe just getting smarter about pitching in the way that Greg Maddox did. And uh, do you give a pitcher credit for that kind of thing, that kind of intangible when you're putting your list together? Absolutely. I mean, the the best are the best for a reason. This is already an inner circle Hall of Famer, as far as I'm concerned, uh, with Clayton Kershaw. So I do think that he can he can live with the diminished velocity. First off, being a lefty helps. They they don't have as high of a velocity threshold. The fact that he's already working with brilliant command and control gives Kershaw that foundation as well. So yes, I do think that, you know, the slider and the curve, two two distinct breaking balls that he works at wildly different velocity levels. Uh, I think that that, uh, that is something that I do give him credit for. I also wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe move toward a cutter, uh, as his career continues to move on. In fact, some of the, uh, some of the pitching sites, you know, they can differentiate on, on pitch classifications. Some of them already have him throwing a cutter a little bit of the time. I, I'm not sure that we're there yet, but as that, fastball velocity gets closer to uh sub 90 if he turns it into a cutter 88 89 with with cut is a lot better than a straight 88 89 four seamer so i could see kershaw doing something like that and then he's four seam cutter slider curve he's back to four pitches i i I still think we have you know two three more years of of great kershaw and then maybe a diminished version there therein depending on how the health holds up and i understand that that's a big risk too particularly with the back but for me i'm not going to run away from kershaw uh without reason and i haven't seen that reason a couple more and then we'll take a break Uh, you had noah Syndergaard at number 12 on your list of top 30 and nick was well let's just say quite a bit lower what's the cause of the difference in point of view on noah Syndergaard? well you're you're asking that question uh a day after he gave up nine earned to the cubs so it's it's easier to be on nick's side at that point of how nauseating it can be with uh with Syndergaard. It, it just it's so frustrating because you watch him at, at his best and you see that he has the talent to literally be the best pitcher in baseball, but he so infrequently gets to that level that it's just really annoying. I understand the trepidation that somebody like Nick has. One of the things that he points out is how often he, uh, he throws sliders that are, that are thigh high and that's just a meatball dying to be crushed from Syndergaard and he does that far too frequently or he keeps his four seamer too low in the zone as well and that could be another uh, issue with him but I still see a 27 year old who despite yesterday's outing uh, I think it will push him over four ERA when uh, when that when those numbers settle I think he'll end up below four and and somewhere close to like a three eight I still see potential greatness though it, it the talent the foundation everything is still there so maybe 12's too high, 
but I really can't go much lower than 1560. I can move him down a few spots, but I'm not going to take Trevor Bauer over him. I'm not going to take Jack Flaherty, Chris Paddock. Uh, I'm probably not going to take an aged Zach Granke over Noah Syndergaard. I still think that there's, there's massive upside here. He needs to figure it out, whether it's getting to the right pitching coach, maybe getting out to driveline or something like that. There's still something to click with Syndergaard. I refuse to give up on him because I, I don't want to be there when I, I don't want to be missing out when he has the uh, the transcendent season, which I do believe is possible. I mean, we we did basically see it in 2016. I think we could see it again uh, here next year already. So I understand the frustrations with him. I've I lived through them. I have Syndergaard on a bunch of teams, so I took that nine run pummeling on my leagues yesterday. But I I still believe in his his foundation of, of talent and believe that he can be a, a true ace. Well, you mentioned Trevor Bauer. You and Nick had an interesting short discussion about him, and specifically you focused on his inconsistency. And I'm a Trevor Bauer owner in a couple of leagues this year. As a pitching analyst and somebody who looks at this stuff really closely, Paul, how do you control your uh, analysis and your your assessment when he has such a maddening level of inconsistency, not only year to year, but game to game? It is beyond frustrating because... You saw what he did last year. It was a Cy Young caliber season. If he hadn't been hit by a comebacker, he probably, you know, uh, would, would have chased, or I, I shouldn't say probably, but he absolutely could have chased down Blake Snell for that award. Uh, Trevor Bauer could have. And then this year, he's right back to the, uh, to the frustrating guy he'd been for so long. I will tell you this. I've already been kind of assessing things. There's, there's been two weeks since I did this. Trevor Bauer is going to be about 10 spots lower. I think that we're all moving too much on him. And uh, I had some trepidation about Bauer coming into the season. I didn't necessarily see a 434 ERA, but I worry that he's an over-tinkerer. And so when one thing goes wrong, he tries to work too much on it, and it leads to more issues, right? Um, you know, there's something... I, I'm not super familiar with development uh, of coding or anything like that, so those who are can correct me. But one of the things we talk about, I, I play a lot of MLB, the show, the video game, and people want things fixed in the game. They want them to patch it, fix the uh, fix the coding. One of the things that the developers talk about is that you can't just go in and fix a bunch of things because you might create some unintended consequences where if you fix this this error where the, the first baseman doesn't play the ball right, it might create three more errors that you didn't intend. That's Bauer to me. He he's worried that his curveball isn't breaking well enough, so he changes this part of his mechanics. Well, now his fastball is being left up high, and so then he goes over to this pitch and tries to fix that. And there's always so much going on that to get everything working in the right uh, in the right way, start to start every fifth day for 32 starts a year. We've only seen it once, and it wasn't even 32 starts; it was 27. I'm out on Bauer. I'm putting him in the 20s. You guys can have him. He has one good year. He's 29 years old. I understand the the allure, but there's a little bit of Chris Archer here that uh, I'm not going to stick around for the end of this show uh, with with Trevor Bauer. I'm moving him down, and if he wants to, if people want to take him as a top 15 pitcher, be my guest. Well, Paul, this has been great so far. Going to move over to do some National League and American League player news. So uh, take a breather, grab a throat lozenge. We'll talk to you again in a few minutes. Sounds great, Patrick. Thanks. Paul Sporer writes for Rotographs and hosts the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, and he'll be back a little later in the show. But coming up, it's our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Well, Labor Day means it's the end of summer and the beginning of the end of baseball season. If you're like me, you'd happily postpone the end of summer and the end of baseball season. 
So how do you postpone the end of summer? Phoenix, baby, 85 degrees, bright, clear blue skies every day, and the perfect place to watch baseball. And how do you postpone the end of fantasy baseball season? First Pitch Arizona, three days filled with over a dozen seminars featuring some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, like prospect expert James Anderson, like Derek Carty, developer of the BAT projection system, pitching experts Alex Chamberlain, Nick Pollock, and Baseball HQ's Stephen Nickrand, ESPN fantasy writers Tristan Cockroft and Eric Carabell, two-time million-dollar winner in DFS Dave Potts, 2016 main event champ, baseball prospectus writer, and Baseball HQ radio guest. Rob Silver, and a whole bunch more experts from all across the fantasy business. And besides the informative and fun sessions with the experts, your registration at First Pitch Arizona also includes tickets to four Arizona Fall League ball games, including the Fall Stars game, a free copy of Ron Chandler's 2020 Baseball Forecaster, and a free copy of BaseballHQ.com's 2020 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Gotta know those prospects. There's some free food for you, a Thursday evening welcome reception, free hot buffet breakfast for hotel guests, and a free Saturday lunch. And there's all kinds of handouts, instant freebies, and prizes to be won. So come on down and join the fun at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to 13th at the Delta Mesa Phoenix in the center of the Arizona Fall League action and a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho Cam Stadium. That's First Pitch Arizona. Go to the Baseball HQ homepage, click on the bright orange logo on the right side of the page, and you'll get all the info, including the hotel discounts. And remember, use the promo code FPAZ19 underscore FLASH, all capital letters, to get 70 bucks off your registration fee. That's FPAZ19 underscore FLASH, all capital letters. It's First Pitch Arizona. Make your summer and your fantasy baseball last a little bit longer. And we'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League News. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start out in the desert uh, in Phoenix, where First Pitch Arizona will be underway in just six weeks' time. Diamondbacks manager Tori Lavallo announced that outfielder David Peralta, often injured, uh, is injured again. He's going to undergo surgery on his right shoulder and miss the rest of the 2019 season. Uh, this is a sad news for David Peralta owners, but they must be used to it by now. Rob Carroll covering the story for Baseball HQ. Uh, what gives in Arizona with David Peralta done for the year? Well, David Peralta's 99 games played this season are his fewest since 2016, uh, and uh, that kind of mutes his uh, 275, 343, 461 slash line. It shouldn't be very surprising in the light of his shoulder not fully cooperating that he's been down a bit this year. With him out of the picture, the Diamondbacks may have to rely on veterans Adam Jones and Gerard Dyson a bit more than they anticipated at this point in the season. Jones has been serviceable, but only two of his 15 home runs have come uh, since June 15th. Uh, Dyson's contributions and fantasy value are limited to uh, what he does on the base paths. Uh, 27 stolen bases thus far, uh, the sixth most in Major League Baseball. Yeah, kind of a one-trick pony, Gerard Dyson. But earlier in the season, uh, I imagine he must have sparked some high hopes for people because he got off to a pretty good start. He was playing regularly, but now a batting average down to 249. But his on-base is over 320, which means he's getting on base often enough to exploit his speed. I guess the question whether you want to 
uh, roster Gerard Dyson at this point is how badly do you need the stolen bases because you're not getting much else. Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're not getting uh, anything else with Dyson except the steals. But, you know, if you're in a tight race somewhere and you need a couple of steals to make a difference, he's a guy that could make that difference because he does run a lot uh, and is very successful. He does, and uh, the red-headed stepchild of fantasy baseball, I talked about this with Paul Sporer, is runs. We don't give people enough credit, players enough credit for uh, amassing runs and, and runs are a part of the game and they're an important category. And we always just skim over them because we're sort of locked into that four by four mindset of batting average, home runs, RBIs, and steals. But runs scored is something that Draw Dyson might be able to contribute as well, depending on where they slot him in the, uh, in the Arizona order. Right. Very definitely. In San Francisco, uh, they recalled shortstop Mauricio Dubon and outfielder Joey Rickard from AAA on Tuesday. The club also selected the contract of uh, relief pitcher Tyler Rogers from Sacramento. Talked about him with Paul Sporer as well. They placed Trevor Gott on the IL with an elbow strain. They optioned a shortstop Abiatal Avellino to AAA. And most surprisingly of all to me anyway, they released second baseman Scooter Jeanette. Uh, Rob Carroll covering this huge bevy of moves. What's going on in San Francisco and how will the dust settle? Well, the Jeanette experiment lasted 21 games, the same number he played for Cincinnati earlier in the season. Uh, His once decent plate skills have completely cratered uh, 41 strikeouts to only two walks uh, for the year, two home runs at 133 at-bats, a far cry from the 50 he produced in 2017 and 2018. With Joe Panic and now Jeanette out of the picture, uh, the Giants appear to be all in on prospect uh, Dubon, who was their, their main get in the Drew Pomeranz trade with Milwaukee. Uh, Dubon made two July appearances for the Brewers, has spent the bulk of the time uh, this, this season at AAA Pacific Coast League. Between the two franchises, he put up a 20-56-302 line with 10 stolen bases in 403 at-bats, and uh, he should see ample playing time in September. Uh, skills in terms of, of, uh, of Dubon... Uh, he's always projected as more of a low-end regular, uh, but a power outburst this season may have moved the needle. At six feet and a slight slight of frame coming into last season, had a collection of 55 grade tools in his hit, run and arm, and alongside an average fielding tool, and only his power lagged behind at kind of well below average. Uh, he would uh, Dubon would tear his left ACL, miss a substantial portion of the season, got into better shape, added good weight, and the results have been impressive this uh, for AAA so far this year. Uh, after previously topping out at eight home runs during 2017, he had 14 in July of, and 362 at-bats, uh, 19 doubles. Uh, so uh, he's beginning to show some power. So this guy could be interesting. Uh, some uh, some decent, uh, above-average sort of tools. Uh, be interesting to see what he does during the month of September. And as you said, uh, the prospect scale that uh, Baseball HQ uses. He's an 8C, which puts him at at a peak level of a solid regular contributor. That's the 8, but he only has a 50% chance of reaching that potential. That's the C part. And so uh, this has to be viewed as something of a gamble if you need maybe a quick injection to replace an injury, for example, in your middle infield. Right, very definitely. It, It certainly is a gamble at this point, but of course, we know that any prospect is a gamble. Uh, some of them have, have hit the ground running. Some of them have that uh, uh, that 
failed prospect uh, kind of tag and, and will wait two or three years before they finally explode. So uh, it's the kind of thing that you if you if you if you get Dubon and put him in your lineup, you're going to want to keep a, a close eye on him because uh, this is a guy who could do very well or he could crater completely during the months of September. In Los Angeles, and this is not exactly unexpected news uh, for for miss, uh, many people who've been following the Dodgers this year. Uh, their left-handed pitcher Hyunjin Ryu, who's been having a sensational year, made his start Thursday night against Arizona, but he's going to have starts skipped in September as they try to line everybody up with a little bit of workload reduction, getting ready for the playoffs. Uh, how does this affect Ryu's value as we look ahead for the balance of the uh, last month of the season? Down the stretch we come, is Hyunjin Ryu going to be part of our uh, team? Well, you know, it's one of those things where you, you need to watch very closely at what the Dodgers do and what Ryu does. Uh, the start Thursday night did not go well. Uh, four and two-thirds innings pitched, 10 hits, seven earned runs, uh, four strikeouts, one walk. And that's just a pattern that we've seen from Ryu over the last the last three starts. Uh, with lots of depth in the, uh, in the, the, the Dodgers have plenty of starting pitcher depth. Uh, Tony Gonsolin and Dustin May have been well, doing very well. Um, Rich Hill and Ross Stripling could be returning from the IL. So uh, the Dodger pitching staff is kind of a moving target in terms of uh, projected innings at this point. Uh, and with the postseason almost here, anyone who looks tired is likely to get some rest. And Ryu certainly looks tired at this point. He's closing out a brilliant career best season with a 2.0 ERA to 150, first 153 innings pitched. But suddenly in the last three starts, he's looked very bad. Coughed up 11 runs over the last two starts before Thursday night. Uh, in 10 innings pitched. Uh, so a lot of those names, uh, Gonsolin, May, uh, Hill, when he's back, Stripling perhaps, could take some of these innings away from him during the uh, the final five weeks of the season as the Dodgers see if, uh, A, they can get him straightened out, B, make sure there's not an injury, uh, and C, try to get him some rest before the playoffs. I've been following this pretty closely these last three games, and, and his pitch counts have all been under 100, well, 101, 90, 93. And to me, what was really interesting about this is his strikeouts have fallen off. He's under a strikeout per inning in the uh, last three games. He hasn't walked anybody still. That's that's a kind of an encouraging sign. One of his hallmarks as a pitcher and one of his hallmarks of his value as a, as a fantasy pitcher is that he doesn't walk anybody. But boy, has he been giving up hits, Nick. Uh, 25 hits in 14 and two-thirds innings and 18 earned runs as a result. And he's been giving up uh, a few home runs in there as well. Two home runs, his start at Atlanta back uh, 10 days or so ago. Then uh, another three home runs against the Yankees, uh, just earlier this week, and then, uh, as you mentioned, we got this start from last night, which uh, is a, a disaster, seven earned runs. No no home runs, but ten hits allowed in just four and two-thirds innings. So if I was a Rayu owner, I, don't, I might just think about streaming him or leaving him on my bench in September, even if he does pitch. Yeah, I think so, too. You know, you look back over his history, 192 innings pitched in 2013, 152 innings pitched in 2014 uh, with some injuries. Uh, then only five innings pitched in 2016, uh, 127 innings in 2017, 82 innings last season, up to 157 innings already this season. This is an arm that sounds like it's ready to be tired because that jump from 82 innings pitched in 2018 to 157, this innings almost doubling his innings pitch count at this point in the season, uh, suggests that he may be very well, may be tiring. Uh, maybe it's just rest that he needs, but this is a guy with an injury history, and there may be something else going on. 
And when you look at that injury history, you'd expect to see arm trouble, and indeed we've seen some shoulder inflammation in his pitching shoulder, tendonitis in his pitching elbow. He's had shoulder surgery on that shoulder as well. But he's also had some hip problems. And that, to me, and and, uh, in 2018, a groin strain. So these are lower body injuries, and in a certain way, of course, you're more worried about arm injuries, but when you start seeing a pitcher who has a history of lower body injuries, that's a problem too, because it gives him two pathways to being uh, ineffective. Right, very definitely. I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a kind of a double problem. Uh, lots of things for the trainers uh, to, to look at at this point and try to make sure that Ryu is in top shape. Uh, so that he doesn't further injure himself if he indeed he is injured as they head into the last month of the season. One of our favorite columns that we like to talk about here at Baseball HQ Radio is Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column, and uh, he was talking about 2020 post-hype prospects. These are guys he thinks are going to be a little bit under the radar. They were formerly thought of as top prospects. They haven't fared well in uh, in their play this year, but they should still be on your list for 2020. And one of those names that jumped out at me was Carter Keeboom, a shortstop in Washington. He had a cup of coffee earlier this year. It did not go well. Uh, it did not at all. Did he even get a fair shake in the short time he was up? He looked uh, overmatched in a late April, early May cameo. Struck out 16 times with just five hits and 39 at-bats. Uh, and uh, since then, has been banished back to AAA and not heard from. Uh, PCL context aside, Keyboom is slashing 309, 414, 513. With 16 home runs, five stolen bases, and 382 at-bats uh, at AAA Fresno. Uh, and, and that's all fairly impressive. Uh, he, he really blew up several early season fab budgets, but with uh, great plate skills and all around set of tools, uh, long term outlook looks uh, really remains unchanged. This is a promising prospect uh, and certainly could explode in 2020 as several guys have this season. Yeah, I looked him up when he uh, when I read this column uh, by Ryan Bloomfield at baseballhq.com and he, he linked out to the uh, call-up report when Keeboom was first called up way, way long time ago when uh, Trey Turner got hurt. And he's a 9C prospect, and a 9C prospect is like an all-star level ceiling. Again, the C means only a 50% chance of getting there, and he certainly didn't look ready this first time through. So the question is, how much weight do we put on that, and what is the issue with playing time with Trey Turner back in the lineup and assuming that he doesn't get hurt? Where's Carter Keeboom's path to playing time in 2020 is what my concern would be. Well, that, that certainly is a concern. I mean, with Trey Turner is not going to get pushed out of the lineup by Carter Keeboom. So it really is a, uh, what you wonder is, does the guy get traded over the, uh, over the winter? Uh, that's certainly a possibility. But given Turner's, if I were a manager or a general manager, given Turner's injury uh, prospects and injury history, I might not get rid of a really good prospect who could uh, come up and, and uh, step in if need be. So lots of questions, I think, about playing time future for Carter Keeboom at this point, but certainly not someone, to, I think, to give up on uh, in a keeper league. In a keeper league, for sure. And if you're planning next year and looking ahead, of course, spring training will tell a lot of the tale. Uh, there's other chances that Carter uh, Keeboom could, for example, turn up in uh, second base or maybe they even transition to the outfield depending on what they need. And he certainly seems to be athletic enough to pull off a, a thing like that and and keep his playing time. Uh, Carter Keeboom, by the way, uh, is the younger brother of 
Washington catching prospect Spencer Keyboom, and they're both uh, dual citizens. They have citizenship in the U.S. and the Netherlands. Their dad is Dutch. And he was actually recalled Tuesday, and I saw Keyboom recalled as a headline the other day, and I thought, oh, it's got to be Carter. But no, it's Spencer. He's not a top prospect. He was in double A. He's close to 30 years old. Uh, the team put uh, relief pitcher Hunter Strickland on the paternity list. Phil Hurt says, just a heads up, the baseball HQ analysts are not even adjusting the playing time in Washington for Spencer Keyboom's call-up, but... There's a possibility he could get called up in September to play as the uh, expanded roster. So just keep that in mind. I don't think Spencer Keeboom is a, is a real target, however. And finally, Nick, uh, in Colorado, the Rockies placed right-hander Herman Marquez on the I.L. on Monday with right arm inflammation and outfielder Ramel Tapia on the I.L. as well with a left-hand bruise. Uh, the Rockies also recalled relief pitchers Philip Deal and Joe Harvey from AAA. A lot of moves, Rob Carroll covering the whole flurry for playing time today. What's going on in Colorado? Marquez left the August 22nd game against St. Louis due to cramping, uh, something he had dealt with in July, but later reports of arm inflammation surfaced and at this point, the exact nature of the injury hasn't been disclosed, uh, nor has taught, been, there been talk of a return timetable. So kind of a 10-day IL stand is something we're assuming at the moment. Um, at this point, uh, the, the, the stout right-handed pitcher leads the National League with 28 starts, 174 innings pitched, 173 hits allowed, all the while uh, surrendering the most earned runs in the majors at 92. And with such numbers, a staff ace wouldn't normally come to mind, but for the past two seasons, Marquez has been as close to one as the Rockies have. Uh, 2019 home road splits are substantial. Uh, 849 OPS at home, 645 OPS on the road. Uh, but on balance, his 9.1 DOM, 5.0 command, uh, 1.2 whip make him an asset to a fantasy staff, especially if you can stream him when he's, when he's pitching at home. And so uh, when he enters a game, Harvey will be making his Colorado and National League debuts. A July 31st acquisition from the Yankees. He spent most of the year in AAA, where a 12.5 DOM over 33 innings really stands out. Uh, Deal appeared in a pair of June games for Colorado, giving up four runs in two innings. Uh, Tapia had been capitalized on David Dahl's latest had capitalized on David Dahl's latest injury to play pretty much every day, and his 3.41 batting average since the All-Star break leads all Colorado regulars. So uh, that was a real blow for Colorado. Uh, notable are his Tapia's contact rates April through August, 68%, 74%, 78%, 82%, 88%. So a steady gain in contract for Tapia month by month through the season. Uh, Yothan Daza has started the last three games in Tapia's average a- absence. And with the Rockies in a double-digit deficit in the wildcard standings, they may want to see if Daza can transcend the uh, 01-138 line he's compiled so far in 60 at-bats. So unless we hear otherwise, playing time uh, will reflect a 10-day IL state for top IL stay for Tapia as well as for Marquez. So these are seems like one of those things where there's a lot of sound and fury signifying not a lot to paraphrase Shakespeare. I mean, these guys are going to get some playing time, but I think if you're looking for some kind of instant boost to your offense, you know, looking at uh, uh, Jonathan Daza and guys like that. If you're desperate, if your league is fairly deep and there's not a lot of other choices in the free agent pool, sure, take a shot. But uh, this doesn't look like a panacea. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all, the, the new guys coming up. On the other hand, take a look at uh, see who gets dropped in your in your league. If Tapia gets thrown back out there, 
uh, take a look again at those uh, contact rates and, and think about someone who might be a decent pickup for the last month if he's available on the waiver wire. Always got to be playing, always got to be digging, always got to be grinding. Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Uh, it'll be September. It will. We're heading into September. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. I appreciate you asking. Uh, let's start in Detroit, of all places. Uh, Nico Goodrum was on a lot of lists uh, over the last few weeks because of the trades and roster changes that have been going on in Detroit, particularly the uh, departure of Nick Castellanos. All of a sudden now we get news that Nick, Nico Goodrum has been shut down from all baseball activities for the next couple of weeks. That gets them midway through September or so. They don't have a lot to play for. They've got guys they want to see. There's a very real possibility he's going to miss the whole rest of the season. Yeah, um, and you know, this is a guy who's been pretty versatile for the Tigers. He's played and qualified everywhere except for catchers and third base, so that's going to be missed. Uh, Offensively, I think more was hoped for uh, after uh, a pretty intriguing rookie 2018. Uh, He's been pretty mediocre in the real game, as noted by just 12 home runs and a 248 batting average. 322 on base percentage through 423 at bats. His biggest fantasy contribution has been 12 stolen bases, but other than this, uh, uh, that that 10% uh, walk rate and his versatility, th- there's nothing really that intriguing about uh, Nico Goodrum right now. I thought so too, but it, he may have represented value for some people because he would have gone relatively inexpensively at the auction or relatively late in the draft. And so when you look at, uh, by Baseball HQ's metrics, he's about a $14 player in 5 by 5 leagues. And I bet you he didn't cost that in a lot of leagues, so he will need to be replaced, not only in fantasy purposes, but also in Detroit itself. So who's going to get the vacated playing time in Detroit, and are we interested? Well, right now um, we've got another Detroit prospect, Willie Castro, he's getting his first shortstop time in his major league debut. He's got some long-term power and speed, upside power and speed-wise for a middle infielder, but he's 22 and he doesn't really look that ready right now. Jody Mercer, of all people, uh, his 263 batting average is actually among Detroit's leaders. He's getting time at first base. Brandon Dixon has 14 home runs, 246 batting average through 334 bats. Uh, Again, another Detroit Tiger with mediocre underlying peripherals. He's picking up at bats all over the place, notably in the outfield and first base. All are names that uh, Tom Kephart listed in his write-up on Goodrum's injury, uh, none of whom are too exciting. Seems like the Tigers ought to be trying to pique some long interest, uh, um, some off-season interest in their their stable of pitching prospects to see if they can improve their lineup. Uh, in in 2020, because this is this looks like a pretty weak group to me. And of course, I mentioned the possibility of September call-ups, but there was a story in the Detroit News a couple of days ago. I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, Tony Paul is the beat writer that covers the Tigers for that newspaper, and on their website, uh, he quoted Ron Gardenhire saying, "There's nobody coming." They're not calling up anybody for September. Uh, I mean, I'm, of course, you have to take that as a with a bit of a grain of salt, but it doesn't sound like Detroit's planning on a, bringing up a whole pile of guys and taking a look, so there's not going to be much help there fantasy-wise either. Yeah, and this goes to your point, depending on how deep your league is, if, if, you, have, uh, if you have an opening at a particular 
uh, position. At least some of these guys are going to be getting playing time. You just can't count on a lot of upside, not even not even in a small sample. Of course, anything can happen in a small sample over these final four weeks. But uh, there's there's just not a lot of, uh, of, of big-time production coming from any of these names, I don't think. And before we leave Detroit, did you see the news that uh, Miguel Cabrera left a game the other night? I was wondering if you heard anything about that. No, I didn't see that. I was uh, focused on some other stuff over here, but uh, uh, that's that's another hit the Tigers will take. That's that's DH at bats that will open up, so uh, they're going to have to fill those too. Moving to your neck of the woods in the Anaheim area, the Angels reliever Keenan Middleton has finally returned from Tawny John surgery that he had last spring. Uh, Middleton showed flashes of being somebody we might be looking at as a late-inning reliever during his rookie season in 2017. So what's the outlook for Keenan Middleton now that he's on his way back to Anaheim? Yeah, it's hard to say this early. Uh, his his future is going to depend on health. I watched his uh, his 2019 debut out of the pen a couple nights ago. He's not yet throwing the 97, 98 that I remembered, but uh, he's at 94, 95. He's still got plenty of movement, which was a, a, a one of his biggest pluses when he was healthy. Um, and even though he uh, he went through a couple of starts and stops during his rehab journey, he whiffed 16 and gave up just a single earned run in nine minor league innings. So that's another plus. Uh, control was a little bit shaky pre-injury. Uh, tough to see what that is now. But I guess simply put, if you're looking at, at, at for strikeouts and maybe even a save or two between now and the end of the year, he's not a terrible flyer to take. Uh, but if he's healthy, my guess that He's probably going to more, be more valuable in 2020 than uh, than he will in the remaining uh, weeks of this year. Well, you talked about the, the bullpen there. Uh, Ty Buttry, Hansel Robles is the closer. Uh, Cam Bedrosian, the, not exactly the murderer's row uh, of uh, relief pitchers. What chance is there that Middleton just forces his way into that mix because Frankly, these guys aren't all that great. Although Robles has, has a low ERA, his expected ERA is almost uh, two runs higher. You know, a decent whip. Uh, Ty Buttry has a pretty bad whip. It, it, it's all not that great. And I'm wondering if you see Keenan Middleton having any path to value through the bullpen, maybe not as closer, but it just in pitching late in games, catching some vulture wins. Yeah, I, I actually, I'll take a little issue with that. I, th- I think, relatively speaking, the Angels were probably pretty happy with their their what they got from the back of their pen this year, uh, particularly relative to other teams, and obviously relative to what the Angels have gotten from their from their starters. Um, I think uh, uh, Robles peripherals aren't that great, but a two two point seven three ERA is closer. Buttrey's three point seven one as a setup guy, but Drosium was actually pretty decent, three point two three ERA in sixty one innings. Um that said, uh, I think Middleton may have pure stuff than any of these guys, and it wouldn't surprise me to see uh um he and Robles and Buttry uh battle for battle for or, e- or even swap late inning roles in twenty twenty. Uh Middleton, if you look at his track record, he has nine saves and a career three forty over seventy seven major league innings. So I think the ability is there. Moving on to Cleveland, uh, th- this happened a while ago, but I'd like to talk about it. The Indians, of course, getting awful news when third baseman Jose Ramirez broke his hamate bone on a swing. And, Jock, you wouldn't believe this, but I was watching the game. I was flipping back and forth amongst two or three games. I had Jose Ramirez on a couple of rosters. And, of course, he's been really solid since the All-Star break. He's been terrific. And he, he was just uh, he was sitting 1-0, uh, and I think, or 1-1, and and... That very just as I tuned into that game, the pitch came in. He took a swing. He fouled it off. 
and uh, it was a very robust swing, and he turned way around, and he just dropped the bat and just stood there with a grimace on his face and waving, like shaking his hand, and uh, you just knew it was bad, and it went from bad to worse. So uh, he's going to be out for the rest of the season for sure. He had surgery. This is going to cost him the rest of his year. It could cost him part of the playoffs if they get that far. What is Cleveland going to do to handle the vacancy created by such a huge loss? Yeah, this one's bad. Uh, a 1.045 OPS through 178 at-bats in the second half, and that includes 15 homers and six stolen bases. I knew he'd been really lousy in the first half. Uh, I don't own him in any of my leagues, but he'd been a force in the second half. Uh, um, Tom Kep- Kephart wrote this up in our playing time today uh, space, and uh, it-, it looks like uh, – Journeyman Michael Freeman and rookie Yu Chang are going to be his replacements at uh, third base. We have them dividing that playing time for the rest of the year, 50-50. Uh, um, it looks like Freeman may get most of the at-bats, uh, primarily because he's a left-handed hitter, although it's interesting. He's hitting uh, 324 against lefties in 37 at-bats, a small sample this year. Chang is a shortstop by trade. He used to be considered, uh, he used to be Touted as a pretty decent prospect a couple of years ago, but he he's lost some luster. He didn't do much in the minors this season. Seventy seven forty eight OPS uh, in spring in uh, in AAA with nine homers, two hundred fifty three at bats. So the expectations are low there. I don't think either name is going to offer much in September, other than again playing time. If you if you have an opening at these positions and uh, and you need a flyer, um, they're going to get at bats. So I guess why not? The one name I look at with a tiny bit of interest is Michael Freeman. He's got a 279 batting average in his limited exposure this year. He's drawing a lot of walks, so he's got the 359 batting average uh, on base percentage, pardon me, that is pretty interesting to anybody who plays in an on base league, uh, 357. Now, those numbers are well in excess of what his expected metrics are. His expected batting average is 242, so he's, what, 35 or 40 points on, over his expected batting average, which is always a worrying sign. Over the last week, he's kind of plummeted down. He's under 200 for his expected batting average, and uh, even though it's his actual batting average is way over at 333, so it's kind of a mixed bag with Freeman, but as you said, sometimes the main thing we have to be looking at at this stage of the year for fantasy purposes is this guy going to get some at-bats and uh, certainly we're projecting almost 200 more at-bats for Michael Freeman that ain't nothing yeah you're right uh, and and uh, the, the 359 on base percentage I kind of glossed over that you, you were right to point it out 10% walk rate he's found a way to get on base uh, if if you look at his 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 uh, his overall metrics uh, just other other than the walk rate not very impressive but uh, who knows I mean Four weeks, four weeks, uh, anything can happen in four weeks, like we've said. Down in Oakland, a similar story. The A's getting some bad news. Outfielder Stephen Piscotti back to the IL. He's got an ankle sprain. Obviously, losing Stephen Piscotti for the A's is not as bad as Ramirez being lost to the Indians, but Piscotti had a nearly a 900 OPS in 56 uh, at-bats since returning in early August from his previous IL stint. And they haven't been getting a lot of production in August out of that outfield DH slot. In fact, you could argue it's been one of the A's biggest problem spots in their entire lineup. Rod Truesdell covered uh, this whole deal for playing time today. What does Oakland do with Stephen Piscotty on the shelf? Well, the first thing they did is call up Seth Brown, who's a free-swinging 27-year-old journeyman making his major league debut in Oakland. Oakland always seems to find these guys 
Brands actually hit 37 home runs in uh, in the PCL this year. I should say the inflated air of the PCL because, as we all know, home runs are flying all over the place in AAA and particularly there. Um, and he's managed to keep a pretty good batting average, 297, despite 127 strikeouts and 451 at-bats. So the A's are obviously trying to catch lightning in a bottle there. They've started him, they've given him four straight starts and so far so good. He's seven for 19 in his first four starts in left field for the A's. Seems like some of this major league pitching may not be that much better than what he's faced at AAA. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what Brown does. But uh, uh, again, if you're looking for flyers, he may not be a bad one to take in here. Well, one of the interesting things about Seth Brown, Jock, from the point of view of gameplay for fantasy purposes, is that for a lot of leagues, because the September call-up date is September 1st, the players who are called up might not appear in the free agent pools till September the 8th, because it's Sunday. And if that's the case, that means that Seth Brown's going to have, even if you get him just this weekend, he's going to have a full week extra to amass those counting stats versus some of the more appealing prospects that may or may not actually even be coming up, especially if they wait till after September 1st. So uh, getting back to what you said in, the, in our first uh, discussion, the, the key thing now is playing time, and Seth Brown has that advantage. Yeah, he really does. And uh, um, like I said, Oakland always seems to come up with these guys. We're going to talk about another guy, Sheldon Nice, at the end of this. And, uh, and Oakland brings these guys up, and some of them have opportunities. So um, um, it'll be interesting to see what Brown and, uh, and, Oakland, and Oakland does in, in uh, September. They also have Ramon Laureano returning from a stress fracture in his shin. He's been on the IL for a while. I'm going to guess this is a holding pattern, at least until we know for sure what's going on. Yeah, it is. It sounds like Laureano is going to be out on a minor league rehab shortly, and he'll be back in Oakland sometime next week if it all goes well. Obviously, getting his production back would be huge. He had, uh, he had what, 20, 21 homers, 12 stolen bases, a 280 batting average, and he was surging at the time he went on the DL in early August. Then again, if Brown hits, he could still take at bats from uh, Robbie Grossman, who's been in left, who's been in, at at one of the outfield corners. It seems like forever this season for the A's, and the only thing Grossman's really done is put together a good on base percentage. Uh, but um, his production's been flagging. Uh, Chris Davis has, as we all know, has been slumping at DH. So Brown still has an opportunity, even if uh, if Lori, even if Loriano comes back when we expected, uh, should he hit. You briefly commented on another situation in Oakland that might be intriguing down the stretch because of call-ups. They have a prospect in Las Vegas in AAA. Sheldon Noisy is apparently how it's pronounced. He's been red hot down there, been getting some reps at second base, which has been a trouble spot for the A's with Jerickson Profar not producing. And you've speculated that you think that Sheldon Noisy could be down the stretch getting some at-bats in that second base slot. And sure enough, they called him up. Uh, talk a little about this situation. Well, Noisy got the early call primarily because Chris Davis is going to spend the weekend on paternity leave, but this takes us into September, so I'm guessing they're planning on having him remain with the club afterward, and he's been one of the A's most productive AAA hitters, a 939 OPS, 27 homers through 498 at-bats. I don't know what the defensive results have have been in his brief time at second base. They have just started give, giving him reps at, uh, at second base in August, but you, you can see what they're their their idea is because Profar has been pretty awful all year. He hasn't been able to sustain any any production uh, throughout all of 2019. Franklin Barreto was up uh, recently, and he 
he flamed out. Uh, Joseph Corden hasn't been particularly notable. Um, all the names that have passed through that spot, uh, if Noisy can, can play the position, they may give him a couple of games there to see how he looks. Uh, he has just over 125 innings at the position down in AAA. They moved him up. Uh, hasn't been tremendous as far as range goes. His fielding percentage around 985 or so, which is serviceable in AAA. They hit the ball a little harder in the big leagues, but they get better positioning probably. So I think this noisy guy could be pretty interesting. And I think that uh, the Seth Brown could be interesting as well. And again, they're on the roster now, which uh, really gives them a, a big advantage over a lot of other guys. Yeah, and 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 uh, don't underestimate roster expansion because the A's uh, the A's are fighting for a wild card spot. They're fighting for the postseason. Um, they're going to need to stay offensive minded. Uh, they're going to do the same thing with their pitching. They're going to crowdsource a lot of these, a lot of this playing time, a lot of these innings they have coming up. Whoever is hitting, whoever is playing well, is going to get time in September. And there's a lot of names that that uh, this could apply to. And before I let you go, Jock, you're an Angels guy. Uh, one of the big sort of speculation points around baseball is who's going to get called up. Uh, who, who do you see on the horizon being a September call-up in Anaheim? Um, well, the, the big one I was hoping for, but I didn't have much hope for, was, uh, is Joe Adele. I think we're going to see him in the uh, in the Arizona Fall League. That's, that's kind of the plan. Um, I think the name that I would look for who, who intrigues me right now is Taylor Ward, who has moved to, uh, to left field from third base. I wouldn't be surprised if the Angels give him some exposure there. He's hit very well this year in, uh, in AAA. I think pretty much everybody has. It doesn't mean a lot. Um, but the Angels have a glut of outfield names, and, and they're really looking to, to, I think, probably try to leverage some of those into pitching for next year. So I think Taylor Ward could get a little bit of September exposure. Um, I wish I could say the Angels had some pitchers coming up. Uh, I don't see it happening, though. I think they've pretty much gone all those. Most of them are, uh, are uh, injured or already up uh, due to injuries. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a very troubling time for the uh, Angels pitching staff. Jock, thanks very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next week. Okay, PD. Sounds good. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Right now, though, it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the speculator column, as you heard when I was talking with Nick, Ryan Bloomfield looks at eight post-hype sleeper prospects for 2020, including Dylan Cease, Carter Keeboom, we talked about him too, and Dansby Swanson. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at the top 25 reliever skill sets for August. And in Rotisserie Gaming, Steve Gardner in a free article looks at the American League's all-keeper team. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and of course there are the tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for having me. As we speak, we're a few days away from September 1st. We'll see a huge parade of call-ups starting on Sunday. We'll see tons of prospects as well as tons of roster filler, let's be honest, over the next week or so. We've seen a few guys get called up already, and I'd like to talk about some of them as well as some of the guys we're going to see after Sunday. But as a general thing, Paul, when you look at this whole situation, what should owners be looking for in making roster decisions about these September call-up guys? Potential playing time. That's first and foremost. You want to see the guys that can come in and and, and get actual playing time here. Now, uh, I believe they can only expand to 28. So you're not going to get as crowded of rosters as we did in past years. So that's a, that's a positive for us in the fantasy circle. Because if that right guy comes up that you're interested in, you don't have to worry about him fighting for playing time with four or five other prospects that are similar to him in his own organization. So playing time is king here, and that will maybe favor some of the uh, mediocre to lesser teams if they have the spot open, but doesn't rule out guys on good teams either. So you're really just making sure, you know, we've got the roster resource depth charts on fan graphs. Click in there, see what the position is that this guy's coming up to, where can he realistically play, and make your assessments based on potential playing time. Well, it's an interesting year this year because the September 1st date is on Sunday. Some of these guys might get called up, but they might not play till Monday. And if that's the case, then there's going to be some differences league to league, depending on how your free agent rules work, as to whether they're going to be available in your free agent pool this weekend versus next weekend because they won't be actually on the roster or get playing time on the Sunday itself. So be, be wary of that. But we have seen some guys get called up already, and I'd like to ask you about a few of them because I'm curious for my own purposes about what I need to do this weekend. How about Seth Brown, who got called up in Oakland? He's got some playing time. He's he's really interesting. Seth Brown, Oakland guys, you and I were talking offline before we started about uh, just generally liking what Oakland does as, as a rule and, and being interested in, in fantasy guys there. You recently picked up Marcus Simeon, who's really been a great story, by the way, the way he's transformed himself defensively. But Seth Brown's going to come in and be the front side of the platoon. Uh, in left field so playing against righties that's going to give him the bulk of the playing time he's started the four games since he's been up batting uh, ranging between fifth and eighth you know Oakland they kind of do that they kind of mix the lineup around except for a couple guys in their steady spots that you can see them mix things up but the most recent game was fifth so if he's starting to inch his way up that could be great for Seth Brown he hit 37 homers in triple a in 500 plate appearances and I understand you know they're using the same juice ball that uh, that we have in the majors, so that's part of it. But he did club uh, 32 years ago in 2017 as well. So power's been there. He's not a major prospect because he is 26, and the simple fact is, once you hit a certain age, yeah, your prospect sheen wears down. But that doesn't mean that Seth Brown isn't interesting. Uh, I think the he looks like one of these. He's such an Oakland guy, by the way, because he's just old, not really a prospect but just a great baseball player. Like, he looks like a legit hitter. By the way, he's also chipping steals all the time. I don't know if they're going to let him get a few of those in September, but he has eight, and he's eight for nine. He was five for five last year. So we could see some power out of Seth Brown and maybe even a little bit of chip-in speed. I'm pretty interested in what he could do. I would actually look at him beyond AL only. I might think a 15-team mixed, maybe a 12-team mixed with five outfielders uh, would get me in the Seth Brown mix there because he's playing. Playing, and that power could be transcendent. Uh, 
Robbie Grossman's having a pretty good year getting on base. They've been batting him second a lot, and he's uh, the other guy in left field that, that Seth Brown would conceivably be competing against. And they have Ramon Laureano coming back, so Canna's going to have to find some playing time as well. Is there any concern here about uh, the team being more interested in getting those established veterans out there more often than a, than a 28-year-old rookie? Well, they're still they're still DHing uh, somebody like Corbin Joseph, so I think Brown could move into the DH role there. Uh, I think the biggest concern would be Loriano coming back because Canha's not going to the bench. Go, if, uh, that's another guy that if you're not familiar with him on any of your teams, you're probably unaware of what he's been doing this year. Mark Canha's been great. I think Robbie Grossman could be the big loser here. Piscotty went on the IL. Loriano is working his way back. So Loriano's going to come back and go right into center field. That's going to shift Canha. He could go to left or right. But then Brown could still play some left or just go to DH. So I don't think that that the return of Loriano is necessarily going to curb uh, Brown's playing time, particularly if he hits. So, we, you know, it's only been four games. He hasn't really done anything yet, but it's very early I don't think that the impending return of Laureano is that devastating to his potential playing time because I also think Grossman doesn't need to be playing every day uh, even despite a quality 348 OBP because that's all he's doing. He's getting on base, which is nice, but I think if Brown shows that he can hang, he's still going to play. So it is something to be knowledgeable of, but I don't think it, it eliminates his playing time because DH is still available. Chris, with a K, Davis uh, is currently out of the lineup because he's attending to the birth of a child, and he's certainly not having a big Chris Davis year. Do you think that uh, Brown can actually push him for DH uh, playing time? I do, and not not full time, but that's that's an avenue where he can spot some days to give Davis some off days. I mean, he's just had a really really rough season. I don't think it would be a scenario where Brown is the set DH and Chris Davis is a a full bench rider, but I do think that that's just another avenue because they do mix and match. So you're going to have days where Brown's in left, days where Brown's in DH. Um, I don't think Matt Olson's really going to get days off because he's not only a great hitter, but a great fielder. So there's not really any first base avenue for Olson or for Brown, but I do think the left field DH will be enough to keep him in the lineup regularly, even with Davis uh, coming back, as you said, just just on paternity leave right now. Another early call-up uh, outfielder, Sam Hilliard of Colorado. How much do you like him, especially given the park? You got to love the park first and foremost, but this guy's really interesting here. He's got skills. The only thing he really lacks is a hit tool, which I say the only thing, that's a pretty big deal, but Coors Field can kind of give you a hit tool at times. This guy has 35 homers and 22 steals uh, this year and 500 at-bats in AAA for the Rockies. Again, AAA numbers are off the charts, but so are so are numbers in Coors Field. So I really think that he could come up and do something here. Rymel Tapia is the one who went out on the IL. At some point, now the only trepidation I have, and it's actually pretty big, is that Colorado is stupid. They don't know what they're doing, uh, almost ever, to be honest. And so I do worry that when Tapia comes back, uh, in fact, I'm not actually sure. It's a hand contusion. It shouldn't be a long IL stint. And I know David Dahl is working his way back. But Ian Desmond should not be playing as much as he is. Yet, they will still do that because they 
are not bright. And so I do worry a little bit on the playing time for Sam Hilliard, but when he's playing and he's a lefty, so he should at least be playing against righties um, on the strong side of a platoon, he could be a real interesting game changer. NL only for sure, and then some of your deeper leagues. Probably not 12 team, except for, unless unless you're at the point where you're playing week to week, which you probably should be, right? Um, if, if you're confident that, hey, I'm getting Sam Hilliard for this week, knowing that he can play, and then, you know, Dahl and, and Tapia, we got to see where they're at. And you just play it week to week. If he can establish himself, I think he cuts into Ian Desmond's playing time. And Sam Hilliard could be somebody who gives you not only power, but some speed as well. Uh, Hilliard, you mentioned a little bit of swing and miss in his game, but he also draws a fair number of walks. Uh, I think he's around yes. three to one ratio of strikeouts to walks, which isn't great, but it's we've seen worse. So let's just put it that way. So uh, Sam Hilliard, keep your eye on him. San Francisco called up a pitcher, Tyler Rogers, and the weird thing about him is he's the identical twin of Minnesota pitcher Taylor Rogers, but Tyler is a right-handed pitcher and Taylor's a left-handed pitcher. Either way, is there any fantasy interest in Tyler Rogers? Probably not really any interest there. I don't know that he's going, I mean, he's not going to usurp Will Smith as the as the guy. I know that some people saw Tyler Rogers and, you know, quickly looked at it and like, wait a minute, did 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 a trade happen there? And the fact that they're they're twins is kind of hilarious. That uh, you know you, you instantly thought of Taylor Rogers, but then he actually was related to him. I don't really see a whole lot here to to get involved with. They have a deep bullpen. There's not going to be a lot of leveraged situations for Rogers to get into. He doesn't have a gaudy strikeout rate. So if he put up a big one in the majors, it would be a surprise compared to what he's done in the minors. Just kind of an interesting thing that uh, we have twins in the league that are righty and lefty throwers. And, out of the bullpens. We saw a bit of a surprise in Houston when they needed a call-up to replace Carlos Correa on the 25-man roster, and you mentioned uh, Colorado being pretty dopey about how they handle these things. Houston's usually pretty smart. They left Kyle Tucker, maybe their top remaining prospect in the minors, and instead they called up Abraham Toro, who wasn't on any top prospects list that I know of. Uh, Obviously, some positional issues. Toro is going to move into third base, Bregman over to short. But Houston also has enough versatile position hitters that they could have made it work if they wanted to bring up Kyle Tucker. So how surprising was it to you that Toro got the call ahead of Tucker? It's been surprising that at every turn they've refused to call uh, Kyle Tucker up. Now, early in the season, he wasn't playing all that well. But that has changed. He has he has improved, and he's having a fantastic season. He's down there in the minors with a 30-30 season, and despite regularly having avenues where they could call him up and maneuver the lineup to get him in, they've bypassed him. I don't know what's going on. It's very bizarre to me, though, Patrick. You're talking about a guy with a 30-30 season that, uh, despite openings, and still an opening right now, Josh Reddick does not need to be playing every day, but despite that, he can't get the call. So, it has me wondering if there's something outside of the baseball, uh, you know, on the field that has Kyle Tucker sitting on the outside looking in, despite uh, repeated oppor- potential opportunities to get him called up. Abraham Toro, meanwhile, hasn't been tearing it up in his first few games, uh, batting around uh, 200, I think, or 210. And how excited should we be about his potential as a fantasy contributor down the stretch, given the slow start? I mean. Houston is one of those smart organizations, so they always get a little bit of love whenever they call up somebody. There's a modicum of interest right off the bat, and then you kind of assess it further. You know, he hasn't hit much yet, but he was a big-time batting average guy in the minors with a little bit of punch. 
uh, it's deeper league. It's really only AL only, maybe 15-teamer if you're really dealing with injuries. But I don't know that this is a long-term thing anyway, so I'm not that interested in Toro right now. In the Tuesday Sleeper in the Bus podcast about expected September hitter call-ups, you mentioned Willie Castro of your beloved Detroit Tigers called up a week or so ago. He's already playing. How confident are you in Willie Castro maintaining his playing time and providing fantasy value? Well, I'm confident in part one um, that he's going to play. As far as the value, that is uh, TBD. I mean, he's not a major fantasy asset. What you're really hoping for here is that Ron Gardenhire lets him go loose on the base path. 17 for 21 this year, 18 for 23 last year between Cleveland and Detroit. He came over in the Leonis Martin deal. Has a little bit of punch, a little bit of batting average. Uh, Could maybe be like a 270-something hitter uh, with a couple homers and hopefully a handful of steals. Obviously, the Tigers aren't playing for anything except for you know, hopefully maintaining the first pick. Listen, if they're going to be bad, just be bad. Don't. There's no sense in being the 29th or 28th uh, best team. Just be 30th, get the number one overall pick. But uh, I do think with Castro batting second at, at the top of the lineup, there will be volume. There could be some speed. He has some interest there in the middle infield. Again, AL only for sure. And then uh, some of your deeper leagues, If maybe if you're dealing with that Correa injury, uh, you could bring in a Castro on a on a short-term basis just to see what's going on with him. He's not a major prospect, but there is some some interesting pedigree here that could pan out into a 5-6 uh, you know, steal September if he really goes wild. Another name that popped up on your podcast was Ryan Mountcastle of Baltimore. I waived him from my tout reserve list to grab Luis Robert of the White Sox. Was that a good move, first of all? And what do you think of Ryan Mountcastle, second of all? It was probably a neutral move. I'm not sure either are necessarily going to get called up. I really like Robert. At this point, a three-level season this year where he's in AAA, uh, putting up some of his best numbers, actually, too. He started in high A, moved to double, now in triple, and he has not worn down one bit. He's been brilliant. I don't know if they're going to start his clock um, at all this year. It'd be interesting if they did because they've got some other interesting young guys uh, in, in Chicago performing. I think Baltimore has a bigger case to not call up Mount Castle and start anything because they're much, much further away. It's not like the White Sox are going to be necessarily knocking on the door next year, but they're in that window of like, hey, we're starting to develop some pieces. Uh, you know, they were in the Machado and Harper signings. I wonder if maybe they're going to go after like a Garrett Cole or Anthony Rendon this year, the two big tickets this year. They're still looking for that big establishment free agent piece to really set them off. I don't know that that's going to result in a Robert call up in September. It'd be awesome if it did. Mountcastle's interesting. I, by the way, Patrick, just as an aside, I absolutely hate more than anything the fact that we have a game that uh, incentivizes teams not to call up their best players. I think that is beyond stupid in every conceivable way uh, because there's no reason that these guys shouldn't be up getting an opportunity when they've proven it that that they deserve one at least and Mountcastle does he's a quality hitter with some punch with some batting average does have some swing and miss but could be an interesting hitter for them down the stretch to play a little bit so I, I feel like they could call him up he's one of those coin flip guys for me I don't mind the move that you made I think in the end Neither will probably get called up, but I don't mind you you moving to the more dynamic guy who actually probably has a little bit better chance to get the call. 
You mentioned Gavin Lux of Los Angeles as well. What are your playing time and value expectations there, considering the Dodgers, another very smart team, but they're in a race to get the top seed in the playoff tournament, and such teams don't usually dole out playing time to relatively untried, untested rookies? That's true that they don't, but this guy is something special. Gavin Lux seems like the next big thing, to be honest. I mean, he's got he's having an unbelievable season in AAA, and he's right on the cusp there. This could change on a dime here because a, a contusion, a hand contusion for uh, Max Muncy after getting hit by a pitch could flip what they're going to do. They, they've been they've been in and out on Lux saying, okay, we might call him up, we might not. Uh, we're not sure what we're going to do. They might bring him up for what they called a ride-along where he would just be with the team but not actually be on the roster. I think this injury might force their hand a little bit and give us the opportunity to see Gavin Lux. Now, the thing of it is they always have depth. And if you're going to bring him up and not, and start his clock but not really play him, that might not make sense. But I don't really, I don't have many concerns that he could fit into their lineup. Gavin Lux, again, this is, he's not the top prospect in baseball, but he's 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 right there with the Joe Adels, the Wander Francos of the world. He's had a brilliant season. He's 21 years old. He's got all the tools. He's hitting 400, 402 to be exact, in 220 plate appearances at AAA. Uh, he's just been something else. So I hope they give him the call, but I'm leaning toward, no, I actually am holding him in a league at least until Sunday to see what they do and if they can give him the call. I never root for injury, but Max Muncy did get hurt, and that could be the impetus to give Gavin Lux a call. In your Tuesday column, The Ten at Rotographs this week, you mentioned Tim Melville, right-hander in Colorado, who had an inauspicious first three starts in his MLB career over two previous seasons. ERA over 11, whip way over two. He's returned as a call-up, and his fastball velocity is down, you said, by three miles an hour. But now he's succeeding in a small sample size, to be sure. But what's the story with Tim Melville? So, yes, he's actually lost a, a good bit of velocity here, three, four miles an hour off of his fastball, but he's pretty much scrapping the fastball. He's become a slider-heavy, slider-first type of guy, throwing it 55% of the time in these two starts and really finding some interesting results. He's down to 32% on his fastball, so the fact that he's lost that velo is, is kind of ancillary to the fact that he's not really using it. A 13% swinging strike rate is really nice. The problem, of course, is that it's Coors, right? And he did throw brilliantly in Coors on Monday afternoon. Of course, that's one of those standalone weird makeup games that you never really know how much the uh, the opposition is into it, or even the even the um, even the Rockies themselves, because Julio Tehran decimated them. It was actually a pretty low scoring game for a for a Coors Field game. I have some trepidation here. Now he gets another start this weekend against Pittsburgh, and it will be at home. If he does well again and he's missing bats credibly, I might be interested in starting Tim Melville in a, in a spot start away from Coors. I still don't think I can trust him out of nowhere with this new slider-heavy approach inside of Coors. You're talking to the guy who had a lot of trepidation about Herman Marquez and where he was going this year because of Coors Field. So you better believe that Tim Melville is not earning any free passes. So right now, I'd look at the schedule. I'd consider spotting him outside of Coors Field, but I can't have the confidence to push him uh, when he's at home with Coors Field lingering. As a more general thing, Paul, how much 
focus should we put as fantasy owners on guys who have these relatively unusual skill sets and pitch mixes? Uh, most pitchers are fastball forward. Uh, uh, the idea of a guy having a slider as his Pr- uh, primary pitch a little bit odd is that something we should be looking for especially nowadays as teams are getting smarter about optimizing pitchers throwing their best stuff absolutely we can't just hand wave everything away that that comes out of nowhere it doesn't mean that everything is legitimate you know um for, you know, whenever there's a max muncie it's we want to be cautious and not dive in but then it turns out to be real there's definitely guys that have their flourish and they don't turn out to necessarily be anything but having a good hot streak but i think the real change is to not dismiss things and in today's game today's fantasy game you have to jump before you have any answers right we don't have the luxury of waiting for things to stabilize so you see somebody like Max Muncie uh, start clubbing a bunch of home runs last year. You got to jump. Uh, you know, Raphael Devers, one of the things that we like to kind of make fun of is the the proverbial best shape of his life type of thing because we see so many of them in spring training. Well, that's an actual legitimate one. Devers said that he was carrying too much weight last year. He had he lacked mobility. It was hurting him on the field and at the dish. He's still not a particularly strong fielder, but he's shed that weight. He was working out with J.D. Martinez, Xander Bogarts, and he's had a brilliant season. This was a mega prospect that had a mediocre... I mean, he wasn't good last year really at all, but he was a 21-year-old who kind of hung in there for a full season despite not really going well, and yet he was kind of an afterthought. I mean, he went too way too late. And I, 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 I'm on record before the season. This is not just a 2020 hindsight to say, hey, I was in on this guy. This was a mega prospect. This is something that the community does at large, though. Once a mega prospect doesn't deliver instantly, the community pushes him aside. And I always think that that's a mistake to, to go guardrail to guardrail. First, you're overhyping the prospect before they do anything, and then you're running away completely when they don't pan out immediately. There has to be somewhere in between. As far as the guys who kind of come out of nowhere... Try to dig and find out what's going on, right? Tim Melville, you might not have even remembered the name before these these two starts because he was so nondescript. But then you go dig in, and this one didn't even take a lot of digging. You go to his Fangraphs page or any other page that shows pitch types, you see that he's basically ditched his fastball and he's gone slider heavy, something that we're seeing a lot of guys do where they use fewer fastballs. If you understand what's fueling these changes, if there's tangible change, you know, look at Ivan Nova. He had the big run there where he was like putting up complete games and pitching really well, but there was nothing different, literally nothing. He was just having his day in the sun, which for a fifth starter in the majors, if you get 30 starts, you're going to have 12, maybe even 15 good ones. You can have 15 great starts as a fifth starter and still put up a five ERA pretty easily. And so he was just having his big run. I mean, he's still in the midst of it, to be quite honest, with Ivan Nova. But there is no tangible difference. So that one's a hot potato for me. Whereas Tim Melville, outside of the fact that he has Coors to deal with, is actually doing something different to fuel this success. So you have to do the digging. You have to do the diligence or else you're going to miss all the uh, surprise breakouts and it's going to be hard to win leagues if you're not uh, if you're not turning over those rocks to figure out why these new players are emerging well we when we're talking about these kind of changes in um, pitch mix and sometimes guys seem to develop new pitches or to improve their pitches spin rates and the amount of break and so forth and i've been asking this a lot lately here on the pod and uh, offline discussions you're a guy who has to look at this stuff pretty intently. What challenges do you see being posed by players who are using 
the new technologies with cameras and freeze framing and and uh, ultra high speed uh, slow motion, as well as advanced training. You mentioned driveline. These things can create real breakthrough growth for players, but a lot of it takes place out of sight. And how do we spot these next tech and training success stories while they're coming rather than after they're here? It's not always easy, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that it's it's my job, right? I, I have the luxury of being able to spend so much time focusing on baseball stuff and and. and you know, collecting a paycheck for it, which is awesome. I'm definitely lucky in that respect. But there are folks out there putting this news out, uh, myself included, uh, Baseball HQ, uh, you know, our friends over at The Athletic, Gene McCaffrey, who's a regular uh, guest on the show, does does this sort of research. Eno Saris uh, over there at The Athletic is very much on the cutting edge of this and giving out that information. So you don't always have to do it on your own, but you do have to be out there reading various outlets that do you don't have to read everything nobody has time to read every single thing out there but if you have your particular favorites that do and you and you kind of put some trust in them to to give you that knowledge then you can be on the cutting edge of it it's never going to be perfect it's never going to be easy either because there's plenty of guys who go to driveline that don't amount to anything right you know it's the same thing with peds they don't automatically make you great there's plenty of guys who've been suspended that you don't even know who they are you don't care about them and they took it and there's been other guys who've taken it and they seem to have some lasting effects from the peds so um you're never going to be perfect with it but doing the diligence of reading the folks who write about this stuff staying alert on twitter and basically when somebody comes up maybe you can't be on it uh in, uh, ahead of time but you can be on it right away right the second somebody starts breaking out search their name on twitter See if there's an article written about them. Go look at your particular uh, news and notes at Baseball HQ or at a Roto-Wire, Roto-World, and see if somebody's already done the legwork there so that you can jump in on that first free agency period instead of trying to wait two or three down the line and then you miss out on these breakouts. So it's never going to be easy, but there are avenues to to garner this information and make sure that you're you're well-informed against your competition. Those are great points, and I'll just throw another one in. Uh, go to your favorite search engine. I use DuckDuckGo. I know most people use Google. But in either case, almost all of them have a news tab for search results. So yes. search the player name and click on news because then you're going to get news stories and a real uh, source of tremendous information can be the player's local paper that we often don't see. It doesn't bubble up to the top. Uh, I know a lot of websites, including Baseball HQ, but uh, a lot of other ones, our guys do canvas those local papers for the teams they're responsible for and can identify that stuff as well. But uh, if you don't want to pay for these kind of website services or if you just like doing it yourself, then don't forget the news tab on your favorite browser. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. And Paul, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about players they think are going to be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners down the stretch. Uh, let's start in the American League with a boon hitter. So there's going to be some some team focus here because I'm really looking at schedules down down the stretch here, and I would recommend everybody go to PitcherList.com and take a look at Nick's uh, Nick Pollock's weekly list. Uh, for September, he has all the schedules mapped out. Now, of course, that's going to change, but he's also going to update it, so you can stay in tune on that. And the, uh, and schedule is going to be the the driving force behind a lot of my picks here. So I'm going to start with White Sox hitters, and it doesn't start for about a week now, but on starting on September 6th. 
They have the Angels, Kansas City, Seattle, Minnesota, Detroit, Cleveland, and Detroit. Minnesota and Cleveland in there could be a little bit, uh, a little bit tough, especially depending if the schedule lines up the wrong way for them. But all of those others are are ripe for for uh, for bad pitching. You know, the Angels they don't have anybody really, but but Andrew Heaney. So if they miss Andrew Heaney, they're golden. KC nothing. Seattle nothing. Detroit twice, and they're. God awful. You want anybody against Detroit. So White Sox hitters, whether it's the the guys you already have, you know, the studs that you already have or that you can trade for if you still have open trading or pickups, you know, smaller guys like uh, like a Lurie Garcia or or maybe even like, um, you know, a James McCann, who I know uh, isn't he still isn't on a roster in every one catcher league because catching has been weirdly deep this year. Maybe a Yomer Sanchez is a fill in guy for you in an AL only situation. Obviously, Abreu, Anderson, Moncada, and Eloy Jimenez are not going to be on the waiver wire, but again, if you have open trading, or if you just have those guys and you've, you haven't been super confident in them of late, particularly Jimenez would be the only one you wouldn't be that confident in, he could be in for a great finish. So I like White Sox hitters, particularly starting on September 6th. Their schedule the rest of the way is going to play out really nicely. And in Master Notes, I'll be looking at schedules and opposition quality in that as well. Uh, how about in the National League, a Boone hitter or hitters? You know, I'm actually staying in the same city, and it's the Cubs hitters because they're going to get uh, they're going to get some schedule boosting, and it starts uh, actually tomorrow with their series against Milwaukee. They get Milwaukee twice with Seattle sandwiched in between. A trip to San Diego. San Diego's not a great hitters park, but they also don't have. Uh, they're starting to look at some innings limits for some of their pitchers, so they could catch the raw end, or the quality end of of San Diego's uh, rotation there as far as hitting against it. Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, St. Louis. Pittsburgh and St. Louis. So the Cincinnati one is pretty much the only one that's really going to present prevent some difficulty there because they have so many good pitchers that it's almost impossible to avoid all of Castillo, Gray, Bauer, Desclafani. Um, but all those others, I'm not that worried about. St. Louis, they have some good guys, but and they'll probably catch Flaherty in one of those two sets. But I think your Cubs hitters are definitely guys that you want to take a look at. And again, it's similar to Chicago, uh, uh, to the White Sox, where a lot of them aren't going to be available on the wire, but you're going to get your Kyle Schwarbers in because he's going to face a bunch of righties, maybe like a, a David Bodie, uh, an Ian Happ, um, you know, I know that some people have uh, qualms about rostering bad people, which Addison Russell has at least been shown to be one, at least for a period of time. But he could also be somebody who helps your team. Um, Jason Hayward. These are guys who are on waiver wires in shallower leagues uh, and could be available for you depending on on your league format. So I think the both Chicago's, White Sox and Cubs, the schedule's really going to start favoring them, and you want to get all your hitters in for those two teams. Over to the mound, how about an American League Boone pitcher or pitchers? Well, I have two. Um, one's going to dovetail with the Chicago situation. It's uh, Ronaldo Lopez. <laughs> I can't quit this guy. I, I, I know it's... It's tough. It's difficult to trust him, especially when you look at the full season numbers. He still has a 5.08 ERA, but he's been pitching a lot better of late. In fact, unfortunately, he had to leave a no-hit bid in his last start due to dehydration. He was through five no-hit innings and uh, ended up coming out. But if you just look at him since the All-Star break, he has a 2.82 ERA in 54 in the third innings with 52 strikeouts. So he's just under that strikeout per inning. He's really been keeping the ball in the yard. And I already mentioned how their schedule works out. And uh, those aren't really strong hitting clubs either. So again, 
at Minnesota, that's a tough one. But maybe the schedule blesses him, and he doesn't even have to to go there for Reynaldo Lopez. He can get Detroit a couple times to finish the season, maybe miss Cleveland. So I like Reynaldo Lopez as somebody who's available that you could plug in and, and potentially get some really strong starts from. I'll also say Aaron Savale for Cleveland. Similar deal. I'm, I'm picking on the AL Central on purpose because they just don't have a lot of high-quality teams. And he's been another quality guy that the... Indians have cultivated seemingly out of nowhere, they've become a real pitching factory. I mean, Shane Bieber was not a highly lauded prospect, and now I've got him top 10 in my 2020. You know, Zach Plesak's been really strong this year. Even Adam Plutko's done some things. Now, I don't really trust Plutko. I think he's kind of a Josh Tomlin uh, 1.0, so I wouldn't necessarily do that, but Clevenger wasn't a big prospect. They they fixed him, so I like what Cleveland does with pitchers. Aaron Savale is still out there in some leagues, so I like him as well. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a boon. Uh, again, dovetailing with my boon AL or my boon hitter is uh, a, a Cub, Kyle Hendricks. He's got the Mets, the the Mariners, the Brewers, Pirates, Cincy. Pirates again, and then St. Louis. That's a pretty pretty soft schedule there overall. There's a few spots there, but he's a really good pitcher. I mean, the simple fact is no one wants to trust him because he throws 85. He can't break glass. But when has he ever been bad, Patrick? Literally never. I understand this is not a waiver pickup, but I do think he's going to be even stronger down the stretch. And by season's end, I wouldn't even be surprised if he pushes ERA below three. He's at 320 right now. He could shave off that that point two and wind up with something in the two nines by season's end based on this schedule here. Paul Sporers, Boone's uh, White Sox hitters and Cubs hitters. So good times coming in Chicago. Uh, Ronaldo Lopez of the White Sox, Aaron Savali of Cleveland, and Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs. So let's move over to the Baines. Paul, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. The rest of the way, let's start in the American League again with a hitter. Honestly, it might be go, go back to something that I mentioned earlier about Aldoberto Mondesi, that they're not, they don't want him diving head first uh, at all, and that could really curb his speed. And at that point, what are you really getting? So maybe that's the one there, is that if you're really chasing down steals and you're thinking that you're about to get back Alberto Mondesi and he's going to run wild, I don't know that that's, that's going to be the case. If you're limited from diving because of your shoulder, how are you going to steal bases? So Alberto Mondesi is the Bane hitter. I like uh, Mondesi as well for the very reason that you suggested. How about in the National League, a Bane hitter? I'm going to go team again, and I'm going to say Giants hitters. And I'm sure some people are going to say, well, duh, it's the Giants. But they've actually had some quality hitters this year, and they've been kind of out of nowhere, guys. I mentioned that catcher's been pretty nice this year. Did you know that Steven Vogt is back and performing well? Uh, they've had some outfield uh, flourishes with Mike Yastrzemski. Kevin Pillar has been great since joining the team. Alex Dickerson. But they only have 6 of 19 on the road uh, of their final 19. So they're going to be at home a lot, and it's obviously the worst park to hit in. So some of those guys that you've been getting some really interesting uh, production from, that could really start to curb and, and come down. So I would I would push off from some of those guys. I know some of y'all are streaming guys like Dickerson and Yastrzemski in your shallower leagues. I would look for some guys with more favorable schedules because uh, with, with so few on the road for San Francisco, they're going to be struggling against that ballpark. Over to the mound again, an American League pitcher uh, who's a Bane. 
This one hurts because I really love Masahiro Tanaka, and he's actually pitching really well. But I think things are gonna uh, the, the tide is gonna turn a little bit on that when he's facing Texas, Boston, Toronto, the Angels, and Tampa Bay to close out the season. Now that that could change. That's just how it's mapping out right now. But all those teams can knock the ball out of the park, including you know he's going to Boston, he's going to Toronto. The Toronto lineup as a whole is not great, but those baby J's at the top are really interesting. And so I think that's a, a more difficult uh, matchup than people are letting on. Of course, with the Angels, you have Trout, Otani, a couple other guys there that can do some damage. Tampa Bay is always tough. So I'm, I'm a little bit worried about Tanaka, especially because people are probably starting to get the warm and fuzzies about him again, as he has pitched well. But the home run ball always lingers with him, and I think his final stretch could be a tough one. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a bane. Well, I, talk, I, I talked him up for 2020, but I'm going to say Thor because his schedule is tough. And uh, obviously, he just had the disaster, so this one might feel easy. But it's really not based on that. It's the fact that he's going to Washington. Then he hosts Philly and the Dodgers. Then he goes to Colorado. He gets a reprieve with Miami, but then he finishes with Atlanta. That is a difficult schedule for someone who consistently disappoints us relative to his overall talent. So I am a little bit nervous about Thor. And I don't know. If you're playing in a really tight league, (laughs) I'm a never-bench-your-studs guy, but is he necessarily a stud down the stretch here? I think there are some scenarios where you could bench him, particularly at Colorado and hosting the Dodgers for, for Noah Syndergaard. So I'd be, I'd be careful with him down the stretch as much as I still want to believe in him and carry him into 2020. This final six, uh, six start stretch could be really tough from somebody that you're expecting premium quality from. Paul Spores, Baines, Adalberto Mondesi of Kansas City, uh, all San Francisco hitters, Masahiro Tanaka of the Yankees, Noah Syndergaard of the Mets. Uh, Paul, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Paul Sporer. Well, they can hit me up on Twitter, at Spore. that's S-P-O-R-E-R. I keep everything kind of posted there with the articles. I'm at Fangraphs all week, all the time doing pods and articles. I'm on Twitch, where I stream MLB The Show, and we talk a lot of baseball. So if you just want to come in, hang out, talk some baseball, that's at twitch.tv slash Spore. I do that five, six nights a week. So if you're if you're a night owl, that's, uh, that's perfect for you. And of course, listen to The Sleeper and the Bust on Fangraphs as well. And the Sleeper and the Bust available on all the podcast aggregators, the podcatchers like um, Apple Pods and uh, and uh, Pocket Cast and those kind of things. Uh, I understand you're going to be at First Pitch Arizona. Or are you going to be talking pitching there? Absolutely. I'll be on the Fact and Fluke panel. I've, I've become a regular on that. It's one of my favorite things. I, uh, without any prompt from Baseball HQ, regularly promote first pitch on my podcast because I love it that much. I'm not shilling. It's the greatest weekend. I've so many converts. They come out once, they're they're hooked forever. We have a whole new cast of characters coming out this year too, including the aforementioned Nick Pollock. He's from Pitcherless. He's going to be out there. Justin Mason's going to be out there. My podcast co-host. It's going to be awesome. It's so much fun. I'm already looking forward to it. Patrick, how, what do you think about this schedule change, though, where it's in the middle of October with the playoffs going on? Is that going to add another fun dynamic where we can watch some playoffs after we do the conference during the day? I expect so. I mean, I know for a lot of people it's a social event. Uh, a lot of people who've come uh, to the 
to the uh, conference year after year. They make friends, and then on Friday or Saturday night, they make arrangements to go out and have dinner. And uh, mm-hmm. sometimes they do, sometimes they don't uh, have those kind of things. But uh, having playoff baseball on the big screen TV, presumably at the hotel or someplace nearby, can't help but be a, another gathering point for a bunch of people who just love to sit around and talk about baseball. You couldn't ask for anything more. Are you doing the podcast, the live podcast? Yes. Yes, we will. And and in past years, it's been uh, it's been me, uh, Jason, and Eno because the last couple of years, Justin hasn't been able to make it out. He's going to be there, so I think we're actually going to do a four man. You know, obviously with the athletic now, but we love having him on. So I think we'll have a four man there, and uh, I'll be grilling them on some of the 2020 drafting stuff that we're going to do, as well as the AFL players that we're going to see. The the rosters were finally announced yesterday. Yesterday being uh, August 28th, depending on when you're listening to this. It's it's a really exciting cast again this year. It's always a hit league but there is some interesting pitching I'm already excited Patrick I, I, I can't wait and it's it's not that far this time because it is in mid-october as opposed to early November well I'm looking forward to seeing you there uh, in the meantime thanks very much for helping us out this week it was great as I knew it would be and uh, I look forward to talking you to you soon Patrick I appreciate you having me on and we're gonna be doing a home and home so folks get look, look forward to having Patrick on the sleeper in the bus very soon and we'll be talking some interesting topics over there thanks for having me on Patrick Paul Sporer writes for rotographs and hosts the sleeper in the bus podcast when we come back our baseball HQ commentaries the frequent flyer and master notes next on baseball HQ radio me again talking about First Pitch Arizona. It's the 25th anniversary of the annual Fantasy Baseball Symposium in Phoenix, and I just wanted to remind you about that and the special flash sale this weekend that cuts 70 bucks off the registration fee. Earlier, I talked about all the events and seminars that make First Pitch Arizona the place to be for the serious fantasy baseball fan. And there's baseball. You get tickets to four games in the Arizona Fall League, including the Fall Stars game on Saturday night. You'll have a front row seat to see some of the game's most important rising stars. Angels outfielder Joe Adele, the Twins shortstop Royce Lewis and outfielder Alex Kirilov. Astros right-hander Forrest Whitley will be there. Giants catcher Joey Bart, Mariners outfielder Jared Kalanick, Phillies third baseman Alec Bohm. The Indians have a third baseman out there, Nolan Jones. you got to see this kid. Cubs shortstop Nico Horner, Cardinals outfielder Dylan Carlson. And those are just the prospects at the very top of the top 50 lists. There's many more. Almost 3,000 AFL players have made it to the big leagues, including 19 MVPs, 6 Cy Young winners, 30 Rookies of the Year, and almost 300 big league All-Stars. Over the past few years, MVPs in the Arizona League have included Nolan Arenado, Chris Bryant, Glaber Torres, Ronald Acuna, and Keston Hayura. And last year alone, we saw Pete Alonso, he was Peter then, but most of us saw through the name change, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. In past years, I saw Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Andrew McCutcheon, Mookie Betts, Christian Yelich, and dozens of other players who went on to be valuable fantasy baseball producers. I also saw Mark Appel, and I never drafted him. Come on down, join the fun at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to 13th at the Delta Mesa Phoenix, in the center of the Arizona Fall League action and a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho Cam Stadium.
It's coming up quickly, six weeks from now, in fact, but there's still room for you. During this Labor Day weekend, we're running a special flash sale that saves you $70 off the registration fee. So you still have time to make your travel plans, figure out how to sneak away from work and invent a work seminar to explain to your spouse, and join the almost 200 other serious fantasy baseball owners who come to First Pitch Arizona with two things on their minds, baseball and how to win at fantasy baseball. Okay, also beer. That's three things. First Pitch Arizona. Go to the Baseball HQ homepage, click on the bright orange logo on the right side of the page. You'll get all the information, including the program, the lineup of industry speakers, 2020 drafts, the podcast room, and all the other details about this can't-miss fantasy baseball event of the year. And remember to use the promo code FPAZ19 underscore flash at checkout. That's all capital letters plus the numerals 1 and 9 for 19, and you'll get $70 off your registration fee. FPAZ19 underscore flash. First Pitch Arizona. Make your summer, make your fantasy baseball last a little bit longer, and we'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Master Notes. And leading off, it's our Frequent Flyer Commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Baltimore first baseman Ryan Mountcastle, a potential September call-up. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Like Austin Powers, Baltimore Orioles prospect Ryan Mountcastle is somewhat of an international man of mystery. We'll explain. He's not necessarily an unknown commodity here at BaseballHQ.com. The 2019 minor league baseball analyst suggested prior to the 2019 season that 20 to 25 home runs were possible for Ryan Mountcastle in 2019. So far, through 505 AAA at-bats, Ryan Mountcastle has launched exactly 25. Nailed it! But that still doesn't explain why Ryan Mountcastle, like Austin Powers, is somewhat of an international man of mystery, does it? So let's break it down, beginning with the international part. Yeah, baby! On Monday, August 26, 2019, Ryan Mountcastle was named as the most valuable player, MVP, of the International League. No mystery there. But Ryan Mountcastle is somewhat of a man of mystery because he has shifted positions several times. The former first-round draft pick by the Orioles in 2015 began at shortstop and has seen significant time in the outfield as well as third base before moving to first base in 2019. See, Ryan Mountcastle really is somewhat of an international man of mystery. Yeah, baby. That's why Ryan Mountcastle, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. So positional eligibility is a plus, power is a plus, average is well, above average. Ryan Mountcastle is batting three oh nine in 123 AAA games. That sounds pretty good, right? A closer look shows that Ryan Mountcastle's 75% contact rate, or his ability to get wood on the ball and hit it into the field of play, is well within our 70% to 80% benchmark range. In fact, it's right smack dab in the middle of our 70% to 80% benchmark range at BaseballHQ.com. But be careful. 
When Ryan Mountcastle's 75% contact rate is paired with his 4% walk rate as leading indicators, our research at BaseballHQ.com provides an expectation benchmark of a paltry 190 batting average at the major league level. Remember, the 300 hitters most often come from the group with a minimum 86% contact rate and a minimum 11% walk rate, according to our research at BaseballHQ.com. Still, Ryan Mountcastle's power is enticing, and he may be called up to Baltimore in September. So if your team is looking for a boosted mojo, not something we necessarily quantify at BaseballHQ.com, consider adding Ryan Mountcastle as our frequent flyer for this week. Yeah, baby! For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about a strategy for the stretch. This is going to be an interesting weekend in a lot of fantasy leagues. Many leagues have their trading deadlines on August 31st, which is this Saturday, and the September call-ups themselves will start on Sunday, which in some leagues will make those called-up players available for claiming or fab bidding depending on league rules and whether the call-ups actually play on Sunday. In many leagues, even players who do play on Sunday won't be in the league's free agent pools because the pools are set on Sunday morning, meaning the players won't be eligible until the next period. But if your deadline has already passed or your league won't let you bid on guys based on call-ups alone, listen anyway. I have some ideas that might help you with another data point as you think through your moves for the stretch. First, let's look at games remaining. One of the underappreciated angles on making moves is counting how many games each team has left to play, and then trying to gain an advantage from knowing who has how many games or how few. You wouldn't think it's that big a difference maker, and certainly it's not as important as the actual talent of the players in question. You wouldn't wave away Mike Trout so that you could pick up Trey Mancini just because Mancini has three more games remaining than Trout has. But usually our free agent choices come down to choosing between relatively equal players. There's a reason they're in the free agent pool after all. And in that case, knowing that, say, Philadelphia has three more games left than, say, Tampa, might lead you to add a sneege more value to, say, Michael Franco than you would to, say, Mike Brousseau. Similarly, if you were weighing a trade offer and deciding between, say, Corey Dickerson and, say, Avisail Garcia, you might want to lean toward Dickerson because he has those three extra games. So with all of that in mind, let's start with a quick review of the game's remaining situation as it will stand on Monday morning. The median for games remaining is 25. Six teams have 25 games left, 11 have 26, and 10 have 24. And depending on your rapid arithmetic skills, you might already realize this means three teams are outliers. The two outliers on the high side are Washington and Philadelphia. Each has 27 games left to play. A key advantage to Washington on this one, though, they have 14 at home, while Philadelphia only has 9. That's the same as the Yankees, who have 24 in all. The Mets have the most home gains, 17 out of 26, while Philadelphia's 18 road games are the most. The outlier on the low end is Los Angeles. The Dodgers have just 23 games left to play. And again, depending on your rapid arithmetic skills, you'll see that any substitution of a Washington or Philly player for an equally skilled Dodgers player will net you four extra games in which to amass some stats. And four games worth of stats ain't nothing. 
It's also possible to go a little deeper into the weeds on the team's remaining games. One such way is to look at which teams face anemic offenses, making their pitchers a sneege more rosterable, and which teams face poor pitching, making their hitters a little more attractive. I assembled every team's remaining schedule of opponents and then figured out which of them have unusually high or low percentages of games against poor opposition. To set a standard of poor quality opponents, I used ERA Plus and OPS Plus, their park and league adjusted metrics, and they're calculated such that 100 means league average. I set the bar at under 95 ERA Plus for poor pitching and under 95 OPS Plus for poor hitting. Let's start with the hitters. The team with the easiest pickings for their hitters is Houston, like they needed the help. The Astros have fully two-thirds of their remaining games against pitching staffs with sub-95 ERA+. Three games at Kansas City and 93, the sixth worst in baseball, and home stands that include three against the Angels and four against Seattle. They have the 88 ERA+, that's second worst in baseball. The drawback for picking Houston hitters is that they also only have 24 games remaining. That's one or two fewer than most other teams and three fewer than the aforementioned Phillies and Washington. A team more in the sweet spot of extra games remaining and facing poor pitching is the White Sox. 16 of the team's 26 remaining games are against substandard pitching. They have three in Seattle, a total of seven home and home against Detroit, and three each at home against the Angels and Royals already mentioned. So come on, Luis Robert. Oakland also has 60% of its 25 remaining games against lower caliber pitching. The teams on the wrong end of the scale are San Diego, Colorado, and the Angels. They don't face any weak pitching at all in their remaining games. On the pitching side, start by looking at Arizona hurlers. Of the Diamondbacks' 25 remaining games, fully 21 of them, that's 84%, are against teams with sub-95 OPS+. They have three each home-and-home with Cincinnati, that's a 91 OPS+. Three against Miami, a major league worst 76. They have nine versus San Diego, and three with St. Louis. Another team with lower quality hitters to face down the stretch is Los Angeles. The Dodgers have 78% against weak sisters like Baltimore's pitching, San Diego pitching, and San Francisco pitching all on the road, and three more at home against San Francisco as well as six at home against anemic Colorado outside Coors Field. Of course, adding up those games will remind you that the Dodgers are also the team with the fewest games left, just 23. Two other teams have 77% of their remaining 26 games apiece against weak hitting, the Cubs and Milwaukee. The teams with the toughest pitching rows to hoe are the Angels, Texas, and Houston, each of which has 24 games left to play, but they combine for only 12 against bad hitting. I could also have used these data to suss out which teams play the most games against superior opposition, but I only have so much time here. Anyway, it's safe to assume the teams with the lowest levels of poor opposition likely have the higher levels of quality opposition. Most of the rest hitting and pitching all around 50-50 as far as quality of opponents. So to recap, the teams with the most and least games to play, Washington and Philadelphia with 27, the Dodgers with 23. The teams with the easiest opposition pitching, the advantage to their hitters, Houston, the White Sox, and Oakland. And the teams with the easiest opposition hitting, conferring an advantage on their pitchers, Arizona, the Dodgers, the Cubs, and Milwaukee. Good luck the rest of the way, as down the stretch they come. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. 
you can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 30th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Paul Spohr from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul's a terrific fantasy analyst, especially on the pitching side, and he's a great guest on our show. I'll be on the Sleeper and the Bust podcast within the next couple of weeks, so keep your eye peeled for that. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and if they have the feature, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.